You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. This episode is part of our Move the Dirt series, designed to empower you with the tools to move towards your goals. Move the Dirt is something we say a lot here at Power Athlete. The dirt is the dirt. It's that lazy, fearful, bitch-mode voice in your head that says, too tired, too busy, too old, too injured, too whatever. You can't reason with it, but you can move it. Some days you get a big-ass shovel in your hands and it's easy. You're strong, you're motivated, you're king of the world. But some days you get a spoon, and you've still got to show up and move that shit anyway, rep by rep, spoon by spoon. So long as you're moving a little dirt every day, you're digging in the right direction. If you're sick of the dirt dominating you and you want to be master of your own self, walk the Power Athlete path with us. Visit powerathletehq.com forward slash training and start moving the dirt today. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Walborn. I'm joined by Mr. Chris McQuilkin, a.k.a. Tech's Director of Training. Howdy. And we have a special guest one of my oldest friends in the world, and in terms of performance training, health, and longevity, there isn't really too many people that fit higher on this list than him, Dr. Tom Inkladon. Yes, Dr. Tom is the founder and CEO of Cosenta Wellness and the Cosenta Cancer Treatment Center out in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, Tom is a world-renowned sports scientist and just a person where when it came to performance, whether it be blood testing, supplements, food, uh, training, he was my go-to and we've been working together since early in my NFL career. And uh, not only one of the smartest dudes, but also one of the funniest and best dressed. Yeah, best dressed, but just a great sense of humor and always a great time to catch up with him. Let's do it. Here's the data. 80% of nutrition resolutions fail after just one month. What we help make happen is you moving the dirt past February 1st. So here's the deal. If you want to attack the year with purpose, stay the course and hit your goals, you need Power Athlete programming. It's been battle-tested at the highest level and gets results for every level of athlete. As a special offer this January, if you commit to the cause for a year, you get the full Power Athlete experience for less than a dollar a day with an extra 200 bucks of content for free, a one-on-one consultation to help you set your goals, and a nutrition protocol of your choice. Visit powerathletehq.com forward slash training and start moving the dirt today. I actually wanted to discuss muscle. We've had, I mean, numerous conversations over the, what, two decades plus that we've been friends and something that we constantly get hit on with questions, whether it be to the podcast, with on the training programs and whatever, is always about how to put on more muscle. And I really think this has become something really important, especially like within an aging population where, you know, guys are in their, you know, twenties and the idea is they want to get bigger. And then you're in a situation where now all of a sudden maybe you're not as physically fit or you're having, you know, I don't know, you start to age. So maybe, um, antigen profile is reducing stress, all these cumulative factors. And so there's this idea that as you fight to gain muscle, you know, it's probably almost keeping you at a net zero because if you're just trying to maintain, you're obviously probably going down. 
So, I mean, we get hit with a ton of questions and uh, the research has really pivoted in the last couple of years. And so just wanted to reach out, get, uh, you know, your take on it, because I know muscle is something near and dear to your heart. Yeah. So, um, uh, so conceptually, let's just say if we had a box and we define that box as the system, and then you would say with any uh, problem, like what is a threat to the system? And then what is rate limiting to the system? So a threat would be, so using this as like, so the system is like optimal biological outcome for maximizing lean body mass. Let's say it's, that would be the box. So the threat to that happening would be things like um, environmental chemicals, pathogens, in other words, uh, vectors of threats that do not belong in a human being's body. If any of this stuff is present, it actually interferes with the ability of muscle protein synthesis rate. So depending on the model you're using, it's really net muscle protein synthesis. So um, as a very simple example, we get people all the time that say, hey, look, you know, I'm working out and I can't seem to lose weight. 100% of those people, when they come here, magically they lose weight. The reason is we just train the shit out of them. You know, what you realize is you didn't do enough. You thought you were doing X, but really you're doing like X minus whatever. And so what we show them is, okay, here's what it takes to hit your goal. And a lot of times it's something like really, really simple, but you can't see this stuff. Like if you're trying to hit the goal, you can't see yourself on the outside to see what you're doing wrong and evaluate it. And that's why you need competent trainers or coaches or performance coaches, whatever you want to call these guys, because they're going to look at you and go, oh, dude, you're doing all this stuff wrong, but you couldn't see that yourself. So, um, so that'd be the threat to the system. And then the other side of that is what's rate limiting, meaning what do you need that you don't have, which then totally interferes with your ability to add muscle. And that's going to be like, vitamins, minerals, essential amino acids, essential fatty acids. And, you know, one of the ways that like I would evaluate competency when um like I'll hear, um, I'll, I'll, so I just did two seminars recently and all I really was talking about is immune responses to exercise. And so, you know, most of the attendees have different areas that they're focused in. One might be, hey, I'm more interested in fighting cancer. One might be, hey, I'm more interested in helping these frail elderly people add muscle. So there's like a wide range of interests and I'm talking about immune system. And so then I just basically related it to each person. Like, here's why the immune system is so important because it fights bacteria, viruses, and parasites and cancer cells. And what's the number one tool that does that? Oh, it's exercise, right? There's no drug or supplement that is better than exercise. And then what happens though, is people do something and they don't progress. So they don't get that immune stimulation that they should be getting because they plateaued and for the guys who are interested in muscle same thing well what's the best way to add muscle it's exercise so you can accomplish a lot with a very simple protocol but you still have to have a way of uh, manipulating a variable so it goes in a direction you want you know from my perspective the window of the immune system is always a small intestine and i know we've discussed this at, at nauseum but, uh, you know, all of a sudden you have an immune response or maybe you're allergic to something and there's some inflammation within the gut, starts binding up receptor sites, and now you can't absorb nutrients. And now all of a sudden you're nutrient deficient because of the inflammation within that small intestine. Or you start getting uh, extremely porous small intestine, you know, leaky gut and these other things, and it's seeping through. So really having that healthy immune system as a relation or as it's related to the small intestine becomes 
you know, almost paramount if you want to, you know, create the environment to be healthy. So two things, though, just to like modify your interpretation errors. One is um, every cell is connected one way or another to every other cell in the body. So, you know, the idea of like, um, like in medical school, we're taught systems independent of one another. So, you know, but today we know things like um, someone has an organism in their mouth and they brush their teeth too hard and then a the bacteria gets the abrasions in their gingiva, travels in their blood, and that can lead to heart disease decades later. But when you go to a cardiologist, they're not running tests on your oral bacteria, oral microbiome. If you go to a dentist, they're not looking at your heart. And then, you know, if you got a calcium score test that's elevated or they see some, you know, myeloperoxidase marker in the blood that's high, probably going to put you on some drug as opposed to saying, hey, look, let's increase vitamin D3 and K2. So we get rid of calcification of your blood vessels and let's look at the microbiome in the mouth and make sure there's not a threat that causes calcification of your arteries. So there's, um, it's not just the GI tract, like it could be the skin, you know, on the outside, it could be like your lips, your tongue, like it's um, the surface area of the integumentary system is pretty broad and there's a lot of potential vectors, if you will, through that barrier. But when I, you know, from testing a large number of people, in general, I don't see as many issues with digestion and absorption as I do with utilization. And utilization is when a nutrient gets into the cell. And since we're talking about muscle, I mean, at the end of the day, you could take all the leucine, all the whey protein, whatever you know, protein powders you want. But if those amino acids don't get into your you know, skeletal muscle fibers, you're not going to get bigger muscle fibers. And then we look at like what's the physical barriers to getting all kinds of nutrients into a muscle cell. There's newer areas um, on, um, you know, basically capillary perfusion and a glycocalyx. There's things we know now about the phospholipid bilayer. So the thickness of our cell membranes. So essentially to kind of really simplify it, let's say I have a diet and Whatever diet I'm following, my let's say the strategy was to manage glucose. So my glucose levels are lower. But inadvertently, I wind up with a fat intake where the chain length of those fatty acids are much shorter. So that phospholipid bilayer now becomes thinner. When it becomes thinner, it becomes more brittle. So this is the layer out of you know, the cell membrane for every cell of our bodies, it becomes thinner, more brittle. And now the transporters for vitamins and minerals to get into the cell, they get downregulated. So there's less of them. So let's say instead of a thousand, I got two. Well, now I physically cannot get vitamins and minerals into that cell. And so then let's just say now we got someone with this thin phospholipid bilayer and now we say, okay, this guy's jacked. He's not getting so jacked in a bad way, not in a good way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, well, the way we distinct it is a, a guy can be jacked or he can be jacked up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> This guy's biochemically speaking, he's jacked yeah, he's up. Jacked up. You know, yeah. <laughs> a, he's not getting any nutrients into his cells. And you could literally transition to either different phospholipids or fatty acids that have much longer chain lengths. And now all we're talking about is the thickness of this cell membrane becoming you know, wider or deeper. But structurally, the phosphate portions haven't changed, but the tails, the fatty acid tails, have gone from like eight to 14 carbons, and now all of a sudden they're like 24 to 32 carbons. And that thickness, it sends signals to now increase the number of transporters for vitamins and minerals. So now you have the physical ability 
to get nutrients into a cell. It's that area right there that I see is the biggest problem that many people have. But because this is so minute or like you can't see it, touch it, smell it or feel it. So it's invisible essentially. And because it's invisible, there's no real attention. And then, you know, there's um, sort of world's foremost authorities on like calcium metabolism, et cetera, different minerals. They'll say, look, if it doesn't like, if you take calcium, it doesn't get into your bone cells. Your bones don't get more dense, right? They don't get stronger. They can continue to lose calcium over time and get weaker. So it, you can't just like take the pill. It's actually got to make it to the end of the, the journey, so to speak. And so what we're doing along those lines is we're bringing in some new technologies now. We'll be able to basically use various optics. So imagine it's like um, it's like a video camera on the end of a probe. It goes under the tongue so we can measure microvascular circulation and then take a measurement of the glycocalyx. And um, can I, let me see, uh, do you want me to pull up like something to show you what the glycocalyx is yeah. inside the blood vessel? I think it sounds amazing. Um, just on a layman's question, sure. I mean, it's a pretty interesting take that, uh, you know, you could have the, you know, the perfect training you could be, a, you know, a healthy energy profile. You could be eating the right diet. You can beat everything. And the limiting factor for muscle growth could be that the nutrients aren't getting into the cell due to something else. Like what would be some common reasons? Um, I mean, is it, uh, uh, I mean, I obviously think it's, it's either an environmental, genetic, or something you're doing that's causing this like underlying stress that's preventing it. Well, so, okay, so one, on the diet side, basically look at the chain length of the fatty acids that you're consuming, right? And so... There's different groups, like um, some guys are very supportive, like your fish oil omega-3s. Other guys are very critical of the fish oil omega-3s because they'll say, well, these long chains of fatty acids basically have a lot of biochemical vulnerability. So with this carbon double bonds, that's where oxidative stress could damage the molecule. And then maybe that creates other problems you didn't want. So if we kind of like look at all the research though, we have more of a visionary aspect and say, okay, where does everything look like it's going over time? Um, what I observed is that um, it was first like, hey, take fish oil because the EPA allows us to produce these fatty acids. Uh, well, I'm sorry, get, get these fatty acids that lead to anti-inflammatory molecules. And then we'd say, well, there's this new thing called krill oil. And this is, you know, years ago it was found. Yeah. And the krill oil, when it first came out, it was way overpriced. It was like these tiny little red pearls. And they were like way more expensive than a giant fish oil. Well, today now, because of re refinements and the commercialization of extracting these oils and stuff, you could get, so the best quality uh, krill oil works way better than the best quality fish oil. And it's cheaper. So it's a no-brainer. Like you could literally add muscle faster taking four grams of krill oil versus four grams of fish oil and and then versus doing you know not taking any of the oils at all but if we go even more visionary or futuristic it's probably going to be you know next three maybe years maybe five they're finding that um the reason why the krill oil is more um is better for health is as phospholipids in it and it's got natural antioxidants. So think of it as this natural structures protecting these fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So you get like a lot more per milligram. Like it's not just EPA, DHA, and DPA. There's all this other cool stuff in it with it. It's like things like astaxanthin, which gives it like that reddish hue and some other types of antioxidants. But eventually um, it's going to be either algae or seaweed oil because they, when they figure out the extraction process for that, you're basically going to have the long chain fatty acids, but you're going to have all these, you're going to have even more natural occurring 
antioxidants and phospholipids. So it's going to be a better fit for our phospholipid bilayer. So essentially people pounding four grams more a day, they're going to have much thicker you know, phospholipid bilayers in their plasma membranes. So they're going to be able to get more nutrient delivery into the cell. And um, that, that's going to, it's going to be one, it's going to work a lot of ways. Now, having said that, let me go another step further and say, okay, that would be a general statement to say everybody should take krill oil, right? But now on an individual basis, because you measured, you mentioned genetics, that assumes people don't have mutations in their genes. They could actually take EPA and convert it to the next step. And I don't know offhand because I don't think there's enough data to make a statement like 12% of the population cannot do it or whatever. But definitely there's people that can't convert EPA to um, like the, let's say the anti-inflammatory molecules or what they call sometimes pro-resolving mediators. There's maybe one of the terms used. So one shortcut around that then is instead, let's just say you have a genetic mutation and you don't have the enzymatic efficiency to convert EPA into this fatty acid structure that has anti-inflammatory property, what you could do then is you could actually just take that structure on the other side of the enzyme. So now the, the fact that your genetics are holding you back is not an issue anymore. So you're basically you're jumping right to the anti-inflammatory stuff. And I could tell you that um, since, um, you know, I've been really involved, you know, we, we test the hell out of a lot of people. We see all these things. No we, shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> shocking to you to hear this. Shocking. This is a new revelation. <laughs> So we find like like we find so many weird things like um maybe weird's the wrong word unique things so like um find a guy and he looks muscular as hell and he's telling me I can't add muscle I'm like okay first you definitely have muscle dysmorphia because you already have lots of muscle and in general the bigger you get the harder it is to add more muscle right it's kind of like you gain, you, the law of, of limiting returns over time when you measure something and you say wait a minute this guy's got like extremely low levels of phosphatidylcholine. Now, it isn't like there's going to be huge reams of data on research on, you know, how does phosphatidylcholine depletion in humans impact muscle protein synthesis rates? You're basically like in uncharted territory. It's a yeah. black void. There's no direction. There's no light. And it's like, okay, figure it out now. And so you got to basically measure things, see what happens. And we basically know the simplicity of it is this. Molecules that you cannot make, everyone needs. And so you take these molecules, that's your vitamins and minerals, essential amino acids, essential fatty acids. And then if you can't convert to the next step, we don't see the cellular levels improving, then you have to figure out what plan B is take something that's more like further down a biochemical pathway to kind of get those changes. So along these lines, here's some stuff that um, my prediction is you never heard of them. We'll see if I'm right. Is um, have you guys heard of urolithins at all? The only way I hear about this stuff is when I come hang out with you and then you hit me with all this and then- Take it like a hundred pills and you're like, and, what is Well, uh, speaking of which, I got to come back in and get retested because uh, I just ran out of packets and so we got to figure that piece out. But what you'll do is uh, you'll, you'll like nuclear drop all this information on me and I'll take all these notes and then like three months later, you'll hit me up and uh, be like, hey, have you heard of all this stuff? And I was like, as a matter of fact, I have. And then we had the same conversation, which has actually given me enough time to research it, which is usually pretty good. So, um, all right. So, uh, you know, with the Human Genome Project, the, you know, we were so naive as scientists. We thought, hey, we're going to discover all these genes and we're going to solve every disease, right? Yeah. And so basically, if we were to just do some 
Like well, didn't we just figure out with the human genome project that uh, we just don't know nearly what we thought we were going to know? I know that, you know, within the stuff that we did with the genome, all of a sudden there are these things that pop up and they're not an issue because things supersede and override in this. And I'm even more confused now than I was five years ago when we got into it. Yeah. So, it, well, it's definitely a very complex situation because, um, so roughly we might say something like, uh, depending on the you know geneticist you talk to, most guys would agree somewhere around each human has about 22,000 genes. And we used to think the genes controlled everything. And that was absolutely a lie. It was not true at all. And then we learned that, okay, there's this thing called a microbiome. And then we find out a single bacterium. So one, like an example would be lact uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. That organism can control about 100 to 110 genes that control inflammation in a human. So like if your lactobacillus levels are low, you're more likely to be inflamed versus if that is adequate to high, you're less likely to be inflamed. And this will be from anything you do. Let's say lifting weights and you get you know, a little bit more muscle soreness or joint soreness afterwards. So now all of a sudden it's like, wow, no one really thought that you know, bacteria would control our genetics, basically. And so now as more research gets done, lo and behold, we start finding like some of these elite athletes that, you know, Olympic gold medalists, they have bacteria that are not found in anyone else. So now it's like, okay, is it, you know, did something, were they born that way? Did this develop in them, et cetera? So now there's this whole, um, you know, sort of, um, uh, industry developing where basically athletes are paid and they collect their stool samples. They do full microbiome analysis on these fecal specimens and they identify the unique organisms that they have that aren't found in everyone else. And then they basically, you know, they basically isolate them, grow them, give them to rats or mice, see what happens. And so there's actually a strain right now called OLP1, so Olympic one, from a female gold medalist weightlifter. And basically, she also has a background in uh, microbiology. And so she isolated this organism from her own stool samples. They've now done studies with it in humans. And basically, you see their, you know, regular people get, you know, add muscle. They perform better over time from taking this organism. So I was joking with Bryce, dude, we got to get every bottle they ever made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Tom, can we do a fecal transplant from these Olympians? Is that a thing? So here's the thing, what I would say with that. Tom's so, like, yeah, no, I did that five years ago. <laughs> yes, yeah. Let, let me explain why it doesn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what happens is that, um, let's say you have a dysfunctional microbiome, and um, one strategy would be to do a fecal transplant. But mm -hmm. that's been going on enough time now that we've actually found that it doesn't last. And so most of the people that I've seen get it done – they would have like some benefits two or three years and then things start going backwards toward a dysfunction they had before. So like think of it as um, if you don't address what caused the problem, just like putting spackle over it, right? There's still gonna be a crack underneath or something like, so you gotta figure out what's causing it. And so it seems like about three years is maybe the limit. The difference with taking the supplement is that you're continually doing it. And there's some definitely some theoretical concerns, and those would be like, so this organism, there's probably some symbiotic relationship between the Olympic athlete or the elite athlete and the organism. Like it grew in their body with no trouble. And just because I, I isolate it, take it, you know, encapsulate it, now I'm swallowing all these pills, it may not grow in my body. And 
some of the, the challenges right now is when I talk to some of the best uh, microbiology labs in the world, so the guys that do like the best microbiome testing, their database doesn't have a way of measuring that Olympic you know, bacterium, if you will. So how are they going to even know if it's growing in me? Like there's not a way to kind of test for all these substrains to see if they're growing. And and so you're kind of stuck with, all right, do I just keep pounding this every day for life and hope for the best um, until some better technology comes along? Well, I mean, aren't there 10 times more bacteria in the body than there are cells? Yeah. So most of our biomass is not human cells. And that's kind of, that was, even to this day, uh, most of our medical textbooks haven't updated that information. So we still define, like, if there's bacteria in the blood, that's sepsis. They're like, well, we most of our biomass is bacteria and other types of organisms. So then that can't be that simple anymore to say bacteria in the blood is sepsis. Now, what I will tell you is this. Um, some of the early data I did back in 2020 when I was analyzing the effects of um, exercise with oxygen on immune parameters I was really fortunate to connect with a lab at a time. We did all kinds of plasma microbiome and oral microbiome and um, urogenital and stool microbiome. And we found that um, a lot of people do have pathogenic organisms in their blood. And one of the cool things about exercise with oxygen is that one 15-minute treatment, it would eliminate these organisms. Now, it would eliminate what was there. It doesn't stop new ones from coming in. So then the logic would be just exercise every day, 15 minutes with oxygen, and you get enough of an immune boost, you know, to basically get rid of all this bad stuff. And uh, right now, um, there's not really um, a universally accepted lab that would be good for doing plasma microbiome analysis. So we're hoping to be able to bring that technology back and start measuring stuff again, because um, even though I can't make... I can't make certain claims like exercise treated someone's cancer. What I can say is we've had patients with cancer and just using an exercise model alone, um, we found that there was no evidence of their cancer over time. Now those people simultaneously added muscle, you know, so there's, you, you can't really say the one thing was had a direct effects. There's a lot of positive benefits that happened. What was the recommended dosage for the exercise with oxygen? Was it every single day for 15 minutes or were you doing it, cycling it through every other day, five days a week? Well, okay. So most of my early data was based on very frail people. So like, keep in mind, average person could barely walk. So not because of spinal cord injury um, or like a bad arthritis. It was just, they were just weak. So, so there's that bias about my data collection. You know, I didn't test a bunch of beasts like you and then say, okay, well, well, it might be a totally different finding. So with those guys, we trained them every day because their their situation was, it was lack of use and that's what it got so frail. So we learned right away is, um, I think the youngest person was 10 and oldest was 103. So that's a pretty wide range of lifespan. People that don't use their muscles enough, you just train them appropriately, but every day. And we're talking, you know, some of these people, I can only, they can only do something for one minute, right? But we're getting everybody to 15 minutes or longer. And now we pretty much have everybody to go for every human being, regardless of disease or age, is at a thousand calories. So they're doing a thousand calories with EWAT. And then once we get them there and we can say like they can reproduce that, then the next step we'll be doing is hypoxic training. And were you getting a thousand calories in 15 minutes with these people? No, nah, but um, I would say 45 minutes to an hour and a half for most of these people, depending on, you know, um, like we've had some people that just, um, you know, they started to barely move, but they just, 
they never challenge their bodies and their lives. And all of a sudden they just like Hulk out and they're like crushing it. And uh, you know, how, how are you, I mean, were you doing multiple bags? Because the bag uh, for the exercise with oxygen we have is about 12 to 15 minutes. Yeah. So, um, what the observation I had is that initially everybody is just learning how to breathe. So they'll crush a bag seven to 15 minutes. They may not even get 15 minutes. That bag is gone. But a lot of that is because they're breathing in and out of your mouth. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I do the nasal breathing. So um, I'm able to breathe through the nose and I can get like, even at like hammering it, I can go between 12 and 15 minutes on that bag. So, um, well, part of it, you have to look at like how much energy per time, right? So they, in other words, like if you're pushing harder, um, th th may, you may, may modulate some of that. We have guys, I think the record right now, I got someone that did uh, 450 calories on one bag. Um, and then, so, which was pretty good. I didn't see anyone do that, uh, at least in, in our, our gym setting. Um, but what we do is we have like eight bags and they're hooked up in series. So let's just mm -hmm. say if you burned your one bag, I got another hose. I, I unplugged the hose off your, you know, yeah. valve. I plug in another one. So we'll just keep reconnecting new, new tubes. Sure. So that's how we keep it going. But, um, the significance of that is, um, so we've had, um, a lot of women in particular, not as many men, but they'd say, I can't lose weight. I just say, okay, you know, we're going to get you a thousand calories in three days. And this is stuff they're like, oh my God, I've never, you know, done like they're doing a hundred calories on their cardio workouts. So <clears throat> we're using the Cybex Arc Trainer. The reason why I picked that device is because it has minimal ground reaction forces. And for our population where a lot of these people have joint pain, we don't want like the shearing force or the forces going to the joint. The other thing though is that the the loading parameters, I could go to like someone that's really frail and weak, I could go to zero pounds of resistance. And essentially they're just like holding on to the machine and it's moving them. And then I go all the way up to 400 pounds of resistance. So if I get an offensive lineman that's a beast, he's gonna get challenged a little bit. So we have, you know, in one tiny footprint of space, I have a wide range of like, you know, fitness levels that we can accommodate. Hmm. so that's the reason why we went with those um you know today and we got those years ago like three years ago four years ago so there might be better options today but it just that worked really well for us so when you see people coming in um you know the like the basic stimulus for putting on muscle should be some form of mechanical tension and loading so when you you know i mean it's really like the basic premise i mean i think the other stuff uh, you know whether it be like a micronutrient deficiency or not getting in the cell i mean those are really like I don't know. I mean, maybe they're limiting factors, but I think the limiting factor for most people is just going in and understanding a little exercise physiology on how to train and training with enough intensity and enough effort to really drive hypertrophy. Because I think in the beginning, when you first start, everything seems to work. And then as you become more trained, now all of a sudden you have to, you know, continue to, uh, it has to go heavier. You have to push, I mean, sets to failure and creating that mechanical tension. Yeah. So, well, so along those lines, so go back to that model I was saying before, like you got this box, we're calling the system, we're saying like optimal muscle mass. So if let's say I came to you and you, I'm, you know, I'm your client, you're going to say, and I say, look, man, when I had muscle, you'd say, okay, you know, how often are you working out? And I go, not at all. Well, then that gets back to, okay, so yeah. one of the things that's missing here is there's no tension, right? So that would be, you know, how you would sort of modify maybe the approach. And, you know, there's so many ways you could generate tension. And, um, Recently, I've really gotten into doing um, uh, just different types of uh, isometric holds for time with a load. So it'd be like, um, 
So let's say like a hyperextension and just hold like almost like a plank position, right? But you're anchored by your um, heels and your, your ankles and stuff. And then your knees or thighs are on a pad. But um, what, I, what I noticed when I started doing that, um, you know, you could do some for years, but never really pay attention to the quality of things. And for a long time, I was just putting my feet in, I'm anchored and I just hold a weight. And then one day, um, my uh, therapist said, you know, are you feeling this in your hamstrings? I'm like, not at all. <laughs> and she's like, uh, are you trying to use your hamstrings? I'm like, I never even thought of about. It's so weird that you're having this uh, conversation with your psychiatrist. You said your therapist. <laughs> she's like, we were in discussing these to these shirts. And next thing you know, we were talking about my hamstrings. <laughs> that's, that's where I hold all my feelings. <laughs> that's why I'm overdeveloped glutes and hamstrings. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm committed to making a better person, you know, becoming a better person, do what I can. So anyway, what I've, I realized is I wasn't generating enough tension in my hamstring. And so um, once I started focusing on that, it, it was almost like getting to another level way easier. And um, so then I started thinking about that more and more. Like a lot of times when I'm doing isometric hold, I just my mind goes somewhere just to pass the time. So I don't have to deal with like the burning sensation. I wasn't really focusing on, well, am I feeling this exactly where I need to feel it? But just making that subtle transition of paying attention more to the muscles, well, now I'm targeting muscle that, you know, gets more stimulation. And that definitely could lead to, you know, some strength gains. So I was telling, saying before about the urolithins. And so um, the reason why I was mentioning that is it's kind of like the, um, think of it as uh, if we kind of summarize all the research and we say, okay, like, um, how come these people eat, you know, fruits and vegetables and they have no disease, but these other people eat fruits and vegetables and they still get disease. And you might say, well, maybe they got environmental chemicals, maybe it's different in genetics or some other variable microbiome. So what they started doing is looking at, okay, the people that don't have disease, the people that have, let's say, add muscle easier, what's unique about them versus these other people that do get disease and stuff. And so um, you got the genetic aspect and then you got the microbiome aspect that these people have bacteria that convert compounds, uh, I categorize them as like polyphenols. So there are lagotannins in um, foods like pomegranate and raspberries. They convert the lagotannins into other compounds called urolithins. And the urolithins are way, way more powerful than the lagotannins. So it's okay, well, <clears throat> Since not everybody can make that conversion, either they have a genetic limitation or they have a microbiome limitation, or they simply don't have access to pomegranate or raspberries, whether it's seasonal, they don't like it, whatever other re reason. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, I like went out here. Hold on one second. I'm right back. Look at that shirt. Well, it, uh, do you remember the real world, uh, the real world when they used to have like the confession booths when they used to put people in there? Do I ever? I mean, this is what Dr. Tom's in. He's in the real world confession booth. Yeah, and why Dr. Tom is setting this up, we had him on episode 566, and we explored in depth the, the value of ex adding oxygen to yeah. exercise. And he, this was one of our first video podcasts on Spotify. So we pulled up an awesome presentation, and basically John and I went to school, and uh, Dr. Tom explained, oh, there he goes. He's, yeah. He had a wardrobe ah, change. I like it. I like it. Wardrobe uh, change. Well, uh, little known fact, it was great. Dr. Tom hit me up. He's like, hey, man, I've been training a bunch with Bryce, who's uh, one of our power athlete coaches and um, uh, wrestling coach and one of my favorite people. 
Uh, but he's like, yeah, oh, we've been doing this training program. I've been having these incredible results. And he starts taking me through it. And he's like, you ever heard of it? I'm like, yeah, that's Grindstone. That's my training program. <laughs> and uh, he's like, man, it's really heady. It's intelligent. I like how it cycles your volume and intensity, movement selection. It's really ingenious. And Go I'm on, like, keep going. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you know, Tom, that's Grindstone, right? And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> so number one, uh, I am a little bit sheltered in that, you know, all these guys would like a CrossFit background. They would take a movement and name it after a person, right? A woman or something. I'm like, what the hell is that? I never heard this girl. And now I'm doing this stuff. Bryce doing stuff. And he's, you know, Bryce is a beast. Yeah. And so I'm watching him do some stuff. I'm like, that fucker's getting strong. I better do something before he passes me. And he's way past me already. But you know, in my mind, there's still time to catch up. So I started doing all this stuff. And what I realized is on my own, I probably would never have done like 80% of those movement patterns because you don't walk into a gym and do brand new shit you've never done before. That's just not how people normally think. Usually someone shows you or you, like you got to have that that instruction to get that confidence to start doing it again. I watched Bryce do all kinds of crazy movements. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? I never seen that in my life. And I've been strength training for over 40 years. <laughs> so then I start doing this stuff. And at first it was ridiculously hard. I, I have so much dysfunction in my joints that it was really hard. But I started doing it more and more. And I was like, I don't have that pain anymore. I don't have those issues, you know. And then, um, you know, so now um, – we definitely incorporate a lot of the, these movement patterns I learned from your uh, grindstone program. And uh, it's definitely helped a lot. Awesome. Uh, so we talked about mechanical tension and um, I mean, there's so many like things like, like I did, as we're going through all these different uh, like bacteria and, and all these other, you know, issues with on the cellular level. I mean, there are a lot of things that people can or can't control. So like in terms of like the low hanging fruit, uh, you know, we talked about mechanical tension. I mean, it's hard to put on muscle in a low protein environment, even though I'm sure you're probably going to give me like one instance where, you know, a guy on no protein put on fucking muscle. Anytime I mention stuff to Tom, I'm like, can you put on muscle low, low protein environment? He's like, not usually, but there was this one guy who could synthesize carbohydrates and make them into protein. I mean, so, I mean, there, there's always outliers, but I mean, when we run into people, like at least for me on the checklist, when people are low on muscle, it's usually like, what are you doing for your training? Are you doing something enough to drive a stimulus? What does your diet look like? Are you eating enough protein uh, or just enough calories with regularity to foster new muscle? Because, I mean, to put on new tissue is something. And then, you know, uh, the other big one, which um, unfortunately is probably the scariest piece to me with all the different research that I've been reading, not only, uh, what was it, Countdown, Dr. Sharon or Shannon Swan's book. Uh, and a few other research deals, the environmental toxins and BPAs and the things within the environment. And then I also, I know you've done extensive research on nutrient density on the food today being, you know, one-tenth as nutrient-dense as it was 100 years ago. So, I mean, there's all these, con you know, like there's a lot of factors in this. So if I had to say biggest threat right now, it's without a doubt environmental chemicals. Um, there's 86,000 chemicals in the environment that have been identified and the current standards of assessing safety, they're pathetically weak. So the way that the EPA and other the equivalent agencies around the world, let's say, you know, different countries and their different government agency that's on par with the EPA, they measured chemicals one at a time and they look at the safety. And let's just say chemical X, and they say at level 1000, it's safe. What they totally ignore is what university scientists studying it say, wait a minute, like if I drink tap water, <clears throat> I'm getting exposed to maybe three to 12 chemicals at one time. 
there's a synergy of interaction with those chemicals. So even though you said this one chemical was safe here, if I go a thousand times lower at that level, so that's a huge range difference at that much lower level, those, that group of chemicals causes cancer. So tap water is a carcinogen. So no one should be drinking tap water anywhere in the world because there's too much junk that comes through. And then you say, well, I'm going to filter my water. I want to drink this other special water. It's pretty, it's way more complicated than I thought. I, I used to think, okay, I'll just get distilled water. So basically, you know, boiling the water, you're condensing it, you're collecting a distillate, and now it's supposed to be a pure water. Well, there still could be volatile organic compounds in that distilled water, and there could still be certain ions. So you say, okay, now I got this distilled water. I got to run it through a charcoal filter to get rid of the VOCs, but I still can have ions. I still have to have another filter to get rid of ions. And after all that, you know, then you got, would say, clean water, if you will. Nobody does that. I mean, we, we do that here because I'm a crazy person and I'm like, I want to see what happens, you know, but wait, so let's get through this filtration process. So you're taking tap water and you're putting it through what a distillation, of? like, so basically a distillation machine. So basically okay. just boils water and then collects the condensate. Okay. <laughs> and any, you know, pretty much any distillation system should be useful there. And, um, and then, and then through a charcoal filter. Yep. And that's inline. So in other words, like the water goes through some, you know, type of uh, tubing that doesn't impart chemicals or some type of plumbing or, you know, something that does piping that doesn't impart chemicals to the water. And then you got now the, car the charcoal gets rid of the VOCs and then it goes through some type of ion filter. So it's ion filter. Yeah, I-O-N. Yep. I know where I talk, it sounds like iron, but I meant ion. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, it's super concerning. I mean, it's uh, it's easier just to bury your head in the sand like an ostrich and hope to God you don't see this stuff. But I mean, think about even people drinking bottled water. Uh, I read a piece of interesting research where bottled water, by the time you get it, has actually been bottled for about 18 months to two years for the production and deal. And it's gone through all these different temperature changes from hot and cold, and the bottles are effectively leaching you know, BPAs and plastics and whatever else is in there in the chemicals. So, I mean, even bottled water now in plastic is by far like on par, if not worse than what you're getting out of the tap water. So one of the ways though, um, so it's kind of like this. So you got these chemicals coming into the system. Now, based on my genetics and my microbiome, let's say I could get rid of like these 10 chemicals with no trouble. But these other 10 chemicals, I my body can't get rid of. So those are the really big threats for my health. Someone else could be the opposite reason. Maybe the first 10 that I can get rid of, they can't. And the 10 I can't get rid of, they can get rid of easily. And this is where, you know, which makes it a little bit more complex. Like we, we tend to think, we try to simplify things and say like, this is good, this is bad. Yeah. Well, we do that with food all the time. These are evil foods. These are good foods. And you're like, there is no evil or good food. Well, all you have to do is look at the genetics and the microbiome interaction and you see things like some people can't metabolize polyphenols in tea. And if they drink tea, they will eventually develop an autoimmune condition. But everybody else is going to say, oh, tea is healthy for you, right? Green tea is good, that kind of thing. Then they're totally ignoring the individual's genetic predispositions and what could trigger them to go and develop lupus. And so this is stuff that's never addressed, or even if you take it more advanced, when we do full genome analysis on people, 
we can look at medications they're on. We could put those medications into our artificial intelligence platform. And then we could see that their genetic mutation, maybe they're on a drug to lower cholesterol. And, um, but well, it does that, let's say we'll call that positive. What it also does is it damages something else in their body. And now, but they don't know that, right? So they're taking something that a cardiologist or some other doctor says they need, not realizing it's kind of like shooting them in the foot, but they don't see the bullet, you know, coming type of thing. So <clears throat> this is when, you know, you have the more detailed picture and, you know, you can make more intelligent decisions or more strategic decisions. But on the, you know, getting back to say earlier about maybe keeping things a little bit more simplistic, some of the basic guidelines are like the healthiest people eat the widest range of foods and they don't have reactions. So if someone says like I'm sensitive to certain foods, what that tells you right away, something's wrong. Healthy people are not sensitive to foods. So the people that are sensitive to foods, chances are they got environmental chemicals and, that, and it could be, you know, like pesticide residues, mycotoxins, I'll kind of maybe heavy metals, I lumped that all in that category there. Or it could be some type of dysfunctional microbiome. We know like if certain good guys are low and certain bad guys are high, you may have you may be overly reactive. And there's weird things like um <clears throat> Uh, people have an overgrowth of certain types of fungi or yeast. They're way more chemical sensitive to the point there's actually conditions, um, burning mouth syndrome, burning tongue syndrome. So a guy standing there, a woman walks by with a perfume and the guy's mouth feels like it's on fire. And like you hear this like that's impossible. How could that happen? What happens is the um, the chemicals from the perfume stimulate the activity of the yeast in the person's mouth. And what they do is they secrete some acids that basically, you know, feel like it's burning. And this is stuff you can't see this, right? Like you wouldn't know what's happening. And then <clears throat> if the guy tries an antifungal, well, the, the organisms may be resistant to it. So it takes something, doesn't work, and then he thinks, well, it must not be yeast because it didn't work when it took the antifungal, not considering that there could be some antifungal resistance, just like there could be antibiotic resistance. So these are the, you know, the things that are not always considered, you know. So, you know, getting back to um, the muscle mass stuff, like, um, one of the things that I see with patients here is um, a lot of people don't eat enough protein or they don't eat enough protein consistently. Now, you know, a lot of people I'm seeing right now, keep in mind that um, they have pretty serious health issues. So that's probably not going to be representative of all the power athlete people. Like you probably say in general, those people are more healthier than some of the people I'm seeing. When I do see guys, let's say that work out a lot, one of the things that I see consistently is there's such maybe a focus on getting in their protein. They don't consider all the micronutrient levels in the foods. And so there's kind of like, um, there's more of an attention on short-term macronutrient composition and less of a focus or attention on the micronutrient levels that determine long-term success. It's like acutely, let's say three months or less, you can go on a certain diet and lean out. But the consequence of that diet is now your cells are depleted. And now if you continue doing that over time, you're creating this challenge where it's going to become harder and harder, you know, to stay lean. And then, you know, then the solution is drugs or more extreme tools to achieve that. 
when I was um, some of the most unhealthy people I've ever tested in my life were diet book authors, number one. Uh, uh-huh. Number two, these are you know experts on nutrition, if you will. Well, because they, they follow one diet, they stay with it too, right? You can't work forever. Yeah, no, uh, we've, I mean, uh, in the 20 plus years that I've known Tom, uh, one thing is universally true. Uh, if you eat the same foods over and over again and don't eat, I mean, we've talked about Roy G. Biv, I mean, eat with diversity. You know, when you go in like to a restaurant, try something new. I mean, I know we've done that many times, but that idea of the healthiest people on the planet are the people that can eat with the greatest diversity. And if you eat the same foods over and over again, over time, that's like a diminishing return. Like you're, you know, exposing your bank account. Yeah. Plus, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of practical reasons, you know, like by, by having a wide range of foods, you're less likely to get chemicals from any one contaminated food source, right? You're more likely to get a greater range of micronutrients by the wide range of foods. So there's those things. But the other thing that I noticed is um, pro bodybuilders and triathletes, like certain elite, like these are like elite level guys that have done extremely well in competition and they look good. You know, they don't look bad in any way. Like no one's going to say, oh, you got too much fat or something. And despite their amount of muscle mass in the case of bodybuilders or despite the performance, you know, like the running forever of the triathletes, when you test them, there's massive depletion, like a lot of nutrients are low. So what I realized is their focus on their acute variables helped them to win. But chronically, you know, there's going to be some challenges long-term with sustaining that muscle mass or staying healthy. And you look at, um, you know, over the years, there's a couple of uh, YouTube videos like bodybuilders that have died over the years. There's a lot of guys that have passed on, and I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to steroid use directly as much as it would be um, all the other things they're not getting. Because, you know, I, I would analyze, I talked to a guy, he's eating like seven foods, and that's it. And then you say, well, um, there's no way you could get every nutrient you need. And then you'd see like they weren't even taking like a multivitamin mineral with all the stuff they're doing because they were so focused on drugs. They ignored all this other basic stuff like your vitamins and minerals that every cell needs. Like there's almost like um, it's like such a focus on <clears throat> the latest cutting edge drug regimen that there's ignorance about the basic biochemistry that, you know, every cell needs, you know. Um, and so uh, anyway, um, some of the thoughts about, um, we're talking about uh, tension earlier. So one of uh, the things that I've really uh, developed an appreciation for recently was um, if let's say my uh, joints, so my right elbow, left shoulder, sometimes I got um, a lot of inflammation in those areas, just changing from a dumbbell or barbell to a band, I can get ridiculous tension but not have some of the joint compression and that can make a big difference and then um i just uh i think i texted you one day uh kabuki strength had a sale it was like 15 percent off yeah. so what if every bar it's yeah. that we got like I, I talked to bryce like do we have this he's like no do we have this okay let's get it yeah so it's like why are we getting it like i don't know i just let's have something different to try Dude, we we have all of this stuff. I mean, Chris has been on the podcast and a friend of ours. Um, I think that Cadillac bar is extremely useful, and I love the Transformer bar. I mean, we have used all of his strength bars, but um, we've even been messing with his uh, trap bar and also that Kratos, which is uh, the the flywheel deal. So, I mean, yeah, I like I like good quality, good company, American made. I mean, you can't go wrong. Well, I was, um, you know, as I started 
I want to say, what did I, I think it was a trap bar that I got for them first. I was just impressed. Stuff is built really well. And, um, you know, I'm not crushing it with the weights like I did years ago, but some of the guys have thrown, like they've put weight to the end of the bar, but it holds up perfectly fine. No, like doesn't warp or anything. One of the things I liked, I think it's a Cadillac bar we got in. Is that the one's kind of got like the handles? It's mm-hmm. got like a bit of a curve. Yeah, yeah got the curve. Yeah. So, like you could be in one position and it'd be like aggravate your shoulder and then find a different position and basically zero shoulder pain, right? Yeah. So now you're able to continue to train without aggravating something. And um, since I started exploring some of those things, I've literally had like, I would do um, a movement and have an ache in a shoulder or a knee. And now all of a sudden I was talking to um, uh, one of the therapists this morning there's no pain at all doing a movement I've had pain for like 10 years. And so I, I think it was just enough of a change that I was able to get stronger without aggravating something and then go back to what I was doing before that was hurting me and nothing at all. Like I don't even think there's an issue as far as I could tell. So that's um, that variety of stimulus contributes to, you know, breaking um, barriers and I had in muscle. And so uh, we've done recently and so um, imagine people that have uh, serious inflammatory conditions. They don't add muscle easily. So they represent a real unique environment because if you could put muscle on people with these conditions, you pretty much know you could put muscle on anybody else that doesn't have something so extreme. And so one of the things would be whether it's um, like an arc wave or some other type of uh, neuromuscular electrical device but something that you could control a bit more. So you probably could do a power dot, but you know how a power dot kind of runs through their cycles. It's got like a 20 minute or whatever. Um, what I like about like a new X or an ARP wave is I could just turn it on and it's running and I can manipulate it over time. But let's say I got a band for occlusion and um, we got a lot of different, you know, versions of it here. So we just pick one that um, it feels comfortable to the individual so it doesn't matter which one but we get it so there's some occlusion and then we'll have them do a light load at first and then electrically stimulate it when they're hitting a point of fatigue so we're going past momentary voluntary failure you know mm-hmm. and then um you know when, and i'm doing this on you know housewives i'm doing this on you know people with terminal cancers so definitely not your traditional you know these are not people thinking about how do i maximize muscle but they have such little muscle that they can't stand. They couldn't pick up a garbage bag, things like that. And so then I'm like, well, since it was able to help those guys, you know, what can we do with other people? So I've, um, I've put tourniquets on my quads, you know, put on ARP waves and other devices, max them out to a hundred. So there's definitely some electrical stimulation and then, you know, squatted or done, um, one of my favorite tools is a single leg squats with a dumbbell in one hand. So think of it as just a negative emphasis. And um, you can get some ridiculous hypertrophy and you can target a muscle because um, let's say if my VMO was weak compared to my vastus lateralis, I could just you know put the electrodes where I want, stimulate the hell out of it, take my time doing a single leg negative squat and uh, 
you could see within days, you could start seeing it becoming more prominent. And these are tools I don't see a lot of guys, at least when, when we have athletes and other guys coming here, they're not taking advantage of some of the stuff. And it's relatively, um, they're not super expensive. Like they're easy things that most people could afford. So like if I had a power dot only, I would just put the power dot on, you know, the area I want to target and then just, you know, add some load, do, do some occlusion and then just, you know, do like a, a negative emphasis type of thing. With the um, with the BFR and the occlusion, I mean, we're really talking about metabolic stress. So, I mean, the idea of like uh, the accumulation of metabolites in the muscle while you're exercising to fatigue. Uh, is that still, because I remember, you know, probably 10 years ago, that was a big deal on the, on the hypertrophy. Um, on the I, I just wonder, and then it's funny, as I was pulling up some research today, uh, trying to get current for this podcast, um, they really downplayed that idea of met uh, metabolic stress as a driver for hypertrophy. Yeah, so I guess it depends on like what window you're looking through, right? If I'm measuring a blood marker, that could be different than an intracellular marker, right? So essentially, <clears throat> mTOR is a pathway, or sometimes AKT, ACT, path. Those are the pathways that get a lot of attention for muscle hypertrophy. And what um the way I kind of look at it is this um years ago when I was uh, collaborating with Mel Sif, the research at that point was kind of like you know you had Olympic weightlifters that looked jacked I mean these were guys that you know imagine going into a deep front squat position and they're they're doing presses with 352 pounds and these are guys that weighed like less than 200 pounds <laughs> i haven't seen very many humans that can do that but these are world record olympic athletes you know so granted they're outliers but they didn't train to failure you know coach would say three reps they did three reps and they just kept putting on more weight and maybe the third rep was all out or not but for the most part they didn't do a lot of training to failure so mel had made a point you know you can get massive hypertrophy without training to failure and i'm like yeah but I bet you, if you look at how the bodybuilders are training, like in general, bodybuilders have more muscle than most other groups. Not saying that's, you know, you're not going to find a football player or somebody with massive muscle, but in general, you don't see a lot of those guys doing like, you know, a set of 10 and just stopping and they could have done 20 reps. You know, they usually kind of go to a pretty high level of fatigue. And this is when there was a lot of controversy. There was um, Gagne, and uh, Gagne was pushing that um, – it was muscle, it was skeletal muscle hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. And I forgot the name of the other guy, but these were classic debates, but his position was hypertrophy. And these were like, you know, very, very bright exercise physiologists or muscle physiologists. And you'd go to these conferences, you'd think these two guys are going to kill each other because they're just so passionate about their position. It's like, but they were studying things differently, you know? And so from their way of studying, like their data supported their hypothesis, you know? And then you're like, well, what if they're both right? Like, you know, whose side would you be on? And then what, you want to do everything you can. Like for an athlete, you just want to get bigger. Like who cares if it's hyper, you know, hypertrophy, hyperplasia, you want to get bigger. Well, I mean, uh, and the distinction is hypertrophy is an increasing of the cells that you have. Hyperplasia is new muscle, uh, like new muscle cells. Increasing the sizes. Well, that's hypertrophy. Right. Like uh, the idea, I think, and Tommy probably contradict me on this, but the idea is that we're born with a certain amount of potential. And then, you know, hyperplasia is like the, you know, the muscle splitting. So now you have more potential. Yeah. And so um, there was a guy named Pertesh. There were some other guys and they basically showed that 
whether it was biopsies or MRIs, that bodybuilders had more muscle fibers than other guys, let's say non-bodybuilders. But what they didn't show is where did they start with, right? So you're still stuck with like chicken or the egg, like maybe bodybuilders are born with more muscle fibers. And then- Which makes them become bodybuilders. Right. And very, but the thing, the observation was that, okay, the bodybuilders had more fibers and those fibers were not as big as the non-bodybuilders so therefore you know the only explanation was they had have they had to undergo hyperplasia and so then a controversy was like well you know we don't have really good human evidence and then the criticism was well who's going to donate their arm so that we could count all the individual muscle fibers to see what's happening right like practically nobody wants to do that so then they started looking at um when I was at Penn State, we did um, a cross-section analysis using MRI and some software. But, you know, basically using a computer to predict how much muscle someone has for an MRI. And it's, you know, it was a good tool, but not as good as some of the stuff that's available today. Uh, but what I was getting at is there's so many things that can be done, but in terms of like an order effect or in terms of like what should be done, just look at what you've done a lot of and then do something different right so it's a novel stimulus that's probably a bigger uh, like a more efficient way to keep, keep adding muscle right just do different things well uh for every three degree change of a movement it hits a different muscle fiber so i was reading an interesting piece about like you know people think that they have to have all of this variation you know the idea of um who, who is your buddy with the muscle confusion tony horton uh what was that? Remember, it was like, it's muscle confusion. And I always thought it was funny. Like, why do you want your muscles to be confused? But I was reading a piece of research that actually talked about uh, three degree change activates a different muscle fiber. So instead of constantly searching for new exercises, just change the effect. Like whether it be, you know, let's say you're doing a dumbbell bench, you know, block it up a little bit, change this, change this. I mean, you know, there can be changes in how you use the dumbbell handles, different this. I mean, so, I mean, there's a million different variations. You don't have to be like, well, I'm, you know, I've, compl I've completely confused my muscles by doing this. So three degree change activates a different set and puts you into a different pathway. Yeah. So one of the ways we incorporate that in some of the um, like rehab uh, strategies we do here, you will look at maybe three positions of contraction. So like, let's say, look at it like elbow flexion. You could do something with a cable or a band where the hand is way behind the shoulder, right? So you're standing upright, your hand's way behind your glutes. And so now as you do the contraction, you know, you basically have the, the elbows way behind the shoulders to get a, a nice long lengthened effect right in that bicep. You could do that with incline dumbbell curl, right? You could just be at 45 degrees, have the hand, you know, a dumbbell in your hand and it's way behind the shoulder. Um, then you could do, uh, you know, the opposite end would be have the arm, like now the, the arm's raised and the hand is above you and you're doing a curl. So basically the upper arm is higher than the shoulder doing a curl there. So you're looking at, you know, like a shortened length contraction versus a long length type contraction as far as like flexion extension of the shoulder joint. And you can pick something neutral, you know, like something in between and then do and that, so that'd be one way and then just modify the angles from there right so you have like reference points and then you could do your three degrees from there or something like that um so recently um uh push-ups with weight have become my one of my favorite exercises nice so, uh, um i had um 
How, how many, uh, but before we go down that road, how many, uh, if you drop down right now, I don't, I, don't, I don't need you to do it, but if you could bang out one set cold max rep push up, how many reps do you think you get? Uh, I'll say between 50 and 60 right now. Nice. That'd be my yeah. So uh, there was a research study that talked about max rep push-ups being a determining factor for heart attack risk. And if you could do, what was it, over like 40 push-ups. 40 was the number? Yeah, yeah, 40 was the number. If you could do over 40, your chance of dying of a heart attack was like nil, almost zero. But people, and then they, and uh, it, it was actually, if you look it up on Science Alert, it'll pop up. But it was a you know piece of research, obviously, and it was like people that were like five to ten had greater. And as you went up in push-ups, your chance of heart attack went down. And so we just started testing everybody that walked in in random places. Been how many push-ups do you think you could get? And it became pretty good in that the fact that you know if you practice them all the time, because I started doing them every day, and I think I, when I was in my forties, and now I'm in my fifties, and uh, you know be able to bring it out pretty good. So it's uh, it, it's a pretty interesting one. But then also realizing when we started using it with a lot of people, how many people do not know how to do a push-up, and you get to see the competitive edge. Mm-hmm. come out yeah where you're like you go first i'm you gonna do go one first. more than you <laughs> well so we would do is like so we say how many push-ups you do you'd say 40 and they'll get to 41 and you go i really did 43 <laughs> <laughs> just well it's it's a pretty interesting one i mean in terms of mortality for men um i think it's what uh like the number one killer of men is what heart disease and then number two is cancer so well i mean there's uh I bet you that if we were to have um, analysis, a lot of these guys, you would see there's a contributing factor, environmental chemicals, a lot of these diseases. And I think it would maybe be reorganized a little differently. Well, um, and I know this is another rabbit hole for this, but is there any way to limit this stuff? I mean, obviously, like through what we ingest. Yeah. So the idea of thinking I'm not going to get like these chemicals into me, that's kind of silly approach because there's no, you can't, you can't avoid something you can't see, touch or feel, right? It's like, I'm I'm never going to let the invisible man touch me, right? That wouldn't make any sense because you can't see the guy. But what you can do is improve your ability of your body to get rid of junk. And, you know, this is like when you, when you study some of these pathways, like, Regardless if someone believes in like, you know, a higher power, like a God or someone believes in evolution, one of the things that's truly remarkable about the human body as like as a machine, it can handle things that never occurred in history before. Like, so like some new chemical comes out and somehow the body's got a way from dealing with it. And, you know, think of it like if you're going to build like, you know, a computer that would defy time, right? It'll still be powerful a hundred years from now or something like that, or a car that run on any energy source. That'd be like a pretty like spectacular accomplishment. And these are sometimes some of the things that you know, people get so caught up with so many things in their life, they forget there's some really marvelous things, you know, everyone's body can do. Even like the, the, you know, the most inefficient human, their body can still do really cool things, you know? And I think on the, um, like there's some interesting things like so let's just say um you hear a lot of times about like the dirty dozen foods that have certain chemicals in them right and avoid those foods well what what's kind of ignored though is that in general the people that um eat the most fruits and vegetables are still healthier even when there's chemicals in those fruits and vegetables well, wait, 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 wait. I mean, but we listen to these carnivore guys. I mean, you know, Paul Saladino, who says that 
you know, vegetables are bullshit, that you shouldn't be consuming those, that they have defense mechanisms that end up causing autoimmune problems, which I think is crazy just because the fact that if that was true, you would have told me that 20 years ago. And the fact that, uh, you know, in terms of like researching and testing, and um, I'm not saying it because we're friends. I mean, there's probably nobody on the planet that has done as much testing as you have on as big a group of people. Well, the, in terms the, of blood work, the current d- dirty dozen for 2022. Here you go: Numero Uno, strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, bell peppers, hot peppers, cherries, peaches, pears, celery, tomatoes. Then there's a clean 15: avocados, sweet corn, pineapple, onions, pap- papaya, 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 sweet peas, asparagus, honeydew. Kiwi, cabbage, mushrooms, cantaloupe, mangoes, watermelons, sweet potatoes. The one thing that's been consistent, and uh, you know, I know this about myself and, and you included, um, you know, in the many years we've known each other, it's like I always search for consistency. And what I kind of get a little bit nervous on is when people go really far outside on the rails, like you know, the carnivore, or the vegans, and you know, the idea that you know we've been consuming some form of fruits and vegetables since the beginning of time. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's uh, defense mechanisms in this that are going to be causing autoimmune issues. I mean, to be able to make those blanket terms for everybody just seems crazy to me. Yeah. So um, here's some just some observations I've made. And this is kind of like um, I've definitely softened my position on a lot of areas. So like when I was younger, you know, like uh, give example. So studying in Bill Kramer's lab at Penn State, we're studying hormones and we're looking at testosterone and growth hormone responses to men lifting weights and later on it was women you know and it was like men and women and stuff like that and so all you measure is hormones and everyone and so then you start to develop this biased view that hormones run everything right they control the world as far as our physiology and now i meet you know guys from outside our lab um you know guys that were scientists from other universities and I'm talking with them and they're like, well, you know, you guys are just measuring snapshots in time. Like you don't know what happened three days later and the rest of the time. So that's a good point. Um, You guys aren't measuring, you know, this stuff within the muscle cell. That's a good point. You guys are measuring. And then you realize all of a sudden that, you know, what you thought explained everything really just explained a very, very tiny amount of everything else going on. And if we kind of like, translate that to some more stuff like right now you hear all these companies are um you know different um photobiomodulation devices or light therapy devices and they talk about the impact on the mitochondria and then as soon as you say great what does it do to proxosome what does it do to the endoplasmic reticulum some other cellular organelle they uh yeah uh they know what to say and then but here's common sense common sense is that Every organelle of the cell is important. If you don't have a nucleus, you're dead. If you don't have an endoplasmic reticulum, you have a problem, right? It's not just the mitochondria that matter, but the problem with research is, you know, groups take it and they drive home that new shiny finding, right? So it's like mitochondria and they, then everybody forgets about everything else. And remember that model I said about the box and rate limiting, what if, let's say, you know, you got person A and what's rate limiting for them is a peroxisome function. 
person B, their issue is mitochondria. So the guy that does maybe red light therapy has some enhancements mitochondria, and they're excited. This thing works. I felt it myself. But the guy with the paroxysome issue does it and doesn't feel anything. And now they're like, oh, it didn't do anything for me. And then the other guy's like, well, maybe you did it wrong. They're not seeing, you can't see inside of a cell, right? You can't see all these other things. And going back to the individuals talking about vegetables causing autoimmune conditions, there's probably certain segments of the population where maybe there is a genetic predisposition or microbiome you know, dysfunction where certain foods are inflammatory or negative for that individual. One of the big controversies um, in, um, there are certain really smart doctors that think that cancer has like a fungal component to it and they're treating cancer like it's a fungus. And they've got some interesting outcomes with their patients, but their data was the other doctors were not able to duplicate their findings. So then you're like, well, is it that part of the world? Is it the genetics of those people that are in that part of the world? Is it some other variable that we don't know? Because it doesn't seem to extrapolate elsewhere. And to your point earlier, like I'm not trying to brag in any way, but we've tested well over 200,000 people over roughly 40 years. And right now, when I go to conferences and I lecture, there was no one in the building there's no doctor, no scientist, no investor. There's nobody there that has the volume of data that we have on one person. We're measuring over 200,000 markers. This isn't just like, oh, I measured my testosterone. What do you think? You know, this is way more details. And when we um, were hired by different labs to educate physicians on newer ways of thinking, and right now there's tons of doctors doing, you know, bioidentical hormone therapy. And we talk to them, well, how is it bioidentical? And they'll say what they say. A hundred percent of them are wrong. It's not bioidentical. They're calling it based on the structural shape, but they're totally ignoring the distribution of a charge around the molecule, which determines a biological activity. And anyone doing HRT, if you have like these environmental toxins, they prevent your hormones from binding to androgen and estrogen receptors. So you measure urine and you see that all the testosterone for this guy is dumping in the urine. So he's injecting testosterone, can't feel any effect of it. So it tells you that it's not getting where it needs. So if, um, just to back up, like uh, normally if somebody's injecting testosterone, you know, when you did their blood work, you'd see obviously elevated, you know, free testosterone. Uh, I mean, are you talking about these people that are injecting testosterone, you're actually measuring it and not seeing any free testosterone and they're just basically pissing it out? No. So, okay. So um, first when um, we would test someone first and then later on, right, recommend a prescription of testosterone. What I'm referring to is we have patients come here and those patients like I've been on testosterone for months or years and I can't really feel any different from taking it. Then when we do blood work on those guys, so we do blood, urine, and saliva samples. And looking at that, so first on the blood work, um, it's got to be standardized relative to the timing of the injection or whatever, however, to get into testosterone. And what I usually see is doctors don't train patients appropriately, like do the injection at, let's say, 9 o'clock at night, and then you have your blood draw at 9 a.m. in the morning. So it's like a 12-hour standard time. But standardize that time. Because then you can't really assess what's happening. Like if you did it four hours before at another time, 10 hours sure. before, right? You don't know the pulsatility pattern is all over the place. So if you standardize the time, then you can at least say, okay, 
is this a situation where we need anastrozole or DIM or due to steroid or some other tool to modulate the conversion estradiol or dehydrotestosterone, right? And then we're also measuring the metabolites to see the other estrogens and androgens that are being created. But when you see those changes in the blood, again, remember that that's not hormone that attached to the androgen receptor. So that's not biologically active hormone yet, right? You only get credit when it gets into the nucleus of the cell and attaches to the androgen receptor. So what you're kind of seeing is like the T's. You're measuring stuff over here, but it didn't really translate down here yet. And so then, you know, any guy that takes, you know, 200 milligrams or more weekly of testosterone, there should be a massive increase in libido. They should be, it should be easy to gain muscle. And if that's not happening, that tells you something's not working correctly in the system. Well, then if you do environmental toxins or you do micronutrient testing, you see things I mentioned earlier, stuff that's there that interferes with binding of testosterone to the androgen receptor or stuff is missing that the cells need in order to function properly. And those things are totally ignored in hormone replacement therapy right now. And so it'd be kind of like spending money on something and not getting the best results from it because something else is missing or interfering with it. No, I mean, uh, like the, if you were to Google or maybe just get on the internet or social media, this idea of hypertrophy is so interesting and that people talk about, you know, gaining muscle and it's so one-to-one, like do this training, gain muscle, eat these foods, gain muscle, do this. But it's such a variability and it's such an interesting response for health. I mean, people naturally assume that, you know, this guy carries a lot of muscle. He's very muscular. He must be very healthy. But I mean, we also know that some of the least healthy people on the planet are bodybuilders who carry more muscle than anybody. Um, you know, and you know, we've been to the Olympia and we've also been to the Arnold and seeing the professional bodybuilders in person, these dudes look like they're moments away from death. I mean, it could be from either the diet or what they put themselves on to be look so lean, but like there's not a single time I've ever looked at any of these guys and thought they looked healthy, but yet the public has this interesting misconception with like vitality and muscle and youth. And it's such an interesting piece, but as we get into it, uh, there's so many limiting factors or more or potentially, um, you know, just breaks on what it takes to be able to put on muscle. And it's the most of the stuff that people aren't even really talking about or even finding a way to see if it works or not. Yeah. What would be, um, be cool is you know to have like different levels of elite guys actually come in here so we could measure all these things on them throughout training and so like like one way that i would really make this more scientific and applicable to everyone else is let's say you got like the strongest guys in the world you got the fastest guys in the world you got the most muscular guys in the world and any other like physical trait that's of importance and just measure everything you can. Let's say we measure 200,000 markers on each guys. And I always start to say, wait a minute, these guys over here that are super strong, they got like this one thing. They all have the same, let's say, bacteria, right? And then these guys over here that are super fast, they have this one hormone that's really high, right? And then these guys over here, so you find like what's unique that that pertains to the group, not just to the individuals and say, okay, now let's bring in a bunch of guys that are like never going to be beyond that. Like they're not even national level capability. And let's just say I yeah. volunteer as tribute. <laughs> just, I, I, like, I like being, do this for that. What would happen? Right. Well, the, uh, um, I, did, did you see recently there was a female sprinter in Kentucky, uh, Ashley Steiner. Did you, uh, I don't know if you follow this stuff. She, she, 
Uh, look her up. I mean, probably the <laughs> I'm just laughing most... inside at the A-Rod story. Sorry. Oh, yeah. the yeah. No, I know exactly. Tom's like, who's this A-Rod guy? But uh, no, I, I um, somebody forwarded this to me. She had like the most dominant performance of a American sprinter, really of a sprinter of anybody in history. Uh, I think like of the top 200 meter times, she holds like seven out of 12. I mean, and just campaigned after this. I mean, look, look her up. She ran like the hundred, like the four by one hundred, four by four hundred, but just absolutely crushed it. And what was wild was the volume of running she was doing, and there was really no taper. And as I'm watching this deal, and uh, it kind of popped up in 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 preparation for this talk, uh, all I could think of is like, man, we need to get her over to Dr. Tom's and get everything tested. Because one, I mean, uh, like you know, it's not a race thing, but it's pretty rare to see a white girl be able to run that fast. I mean, she ran uh, sub 22 seconds in the, uh, in the 200 and the amount of ability that she had to have to be able to hold that in the capacity over, you know, seven months to be able to run at those speeds that consistently was unreal. I mean, you know, ran uh, sub 11 seconds in the hundred. What? 9.86. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Ran sub 10, sub 10 in the hundred ran sub 22 and didn't just do it once. Indoor track. Indoor track had no. the had the fastest three hundred. Uh, like I mean, just the amount of like things that I follow. They they basically went through her like last seven months, and parents were sprinters or something, you know. And then he well, kind of got. I kind of wanted to know some history on her uh, because her ability to kick and finish was incredible. Like just and and like when you're looking at a run technique, I mean, I like just like. I, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, she's just moving incredibly fast, but her uh, the duration and the consistency and her inability to get tired because I mean, I, there's got to be like, I mean, how many max effort attempts do you really have? And she's just out there just crushing one after the other. So as I was watching this thing, I'm like, man, I wish we could get her in, have Dr. Tom test her because I mean, she's working with a different either gut biome, uh, physiological marker, whatever it is, but I mean, wired up completely different. And usually, you'd, I mean, even to the point where, you know, going down and dominating the Jamaican sprinters who, you know, in history have created like such a dynasty, but just out there killing them. So, I mean, super impressive. So. I'm very impressed. Yeah, no, look it up. So if people wanted, you know, like, like, okay, my 2023 resolution and I hate the term resolution but in 2023 my goal is I want to put on more muscle because muscle is equal to health and if we think about you know muscle being the longest determining factor for survival right I mean we talked about this especially with um, you know with my dad when he was you know going through you know the end of his life um, you know he was with the through the paracentesis remember taking all that fluid off of him I remember you and I talking and being like hey like this is how much fluids coming off this is where it's coming from like there's a basic equation here that eventually he'll lose too much weight and muscle and this will be the expiration and it was pretty close. Um, so you get into this idea of muscle and longevity and this idea that the person that can maintain muscle mass the longest tends to have the greatest form of longevity and outcome. So if somebody wanted to gain muscle, like what's the low hanging fruit and, and more importantly, like what would be those basic recommendations? Because I think we have looked over this podcast I mean, there's a hell of a scale here from like mechanical tension, lifting weights, eating fruits and vegetables, all the way down to analyzing your gut biome and figuring out, you know, what bacteria you don't have. So, gosh, I think that's, um, so, you know, we measure a lot of different things. So to kind of say one is more important than the other, like I would say 
ideally each person kind of finds out what's rate limiting or biggest threat for themselves but if we had to kind of like make like some general statements things that oftentimes aren't considered in terms of adding muscle one is sleep quality not sleep volume but sleep quality another one is um uh, total volume of training uh, in general um, you're not going to hear very many experts ever talk about this but when your total exercise time is 10 hours a week or higher, the incidence of almost every disease drops to like really, really low. I won't say zero, but it's ridiculously low. And sure, we, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, we know from, um, so I remember I, I work with people more on the extreme end. Like, so right now I, I don't see as many athletes as I did, let's say years ago, but we still see some pretty, I mean, we got some studs coming in here. I have one guy, he had a, a surgery to reattach an ACL. He just got cleared to start exercising. So essentially, he's like in his worst shape that he's been in in years, right? So he's not in good shape for himself. Given that he's in flip-flops, he's got the resistance set to 400 pounds on the Cypex Arc trainer, and he's talking on the phone and crushing his thing. Like, he wasn't even sweating or breathing heavy. Like, they like, yep. That is definitely the definition of an outlier because yeah. this guy is even after an injury, after surgery, would not being in shape and he wasn't even working hard, you know. Now, anybody else would have been like breathing heavy and stressing out and stuff, you know, because he's talking as he's working out and he's not gasping for air. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's got to be zone two. I mean, somewhere in that, you know, 70% heart rate, like you should be able to carry a conversation. Yeah, but you would... You know, when you're pushing that much load, you know, that rapidly, there's very few people that could have a conversation without, you know, gasping and stuff like that. Um, so I mentioned the sleep quality, mentioned the exercise volume. And, uh, oh, the point I didn't make about the exercise volume, you know, is that even um, people that are very, very frail, that are near death, if we could get them up to that, we could literally extend their lifespan by months or years. So they, like, let's, so let's just say... Um, it's irrefutable that they're going to die of the disease just by getting this ability to improve their fitness level. We take them off hospice. They don't need uh, codeine or morphine. And now they're out walking about like normal people. And then if you saw them and I didn't say anything, you wouldn't even know they have a terminal illness at that point. Most people think they're, they're, they're cured. They're not cured. We just get rid of what's most rate limiting to their ability to function so they function like a normal person and one of the sad things is that's totally ignored in medicine right now as soon as someone has a you know diagnosis that's terminal everybody says oh be gentle with them be careful with them yeah. so they atrophy faster you know and we've got um recently i got you know two really lovely women um and you know I meet a lot of really nice people. It's really sad, you know, and heartbreaking to watch these people suffer and go downhill. Uh, this one woman was um, like, she was really like a bright light. You know, when you meet her, you're just like smiling. You don't even know why you're smiling and that kind of thing. And um, I remember um, she started losing weight and I'm like, we really got to put muscle on you because if we don't, you're, you know, there's no way you're going to turn the corner and it, you're going to decline rapidly. And the thing was at that point, I really felt like we we're going to win. Like we're going to win is, you know, we turn the corner and she doesn't die of cancer in this context. Another woman who at the same time was declining rapidly. 
I told the same thing and I didn't really think that woman we were going to be able to help because she was going downhill so rapidly. So the woman that I didn't think we were able to help, she calls her one day and she goes, I decided I don't care what it takes, but I'm going to get more food into my body. And you got to understand is when you're that inflamed, the signals to your brain shut your appetite down. So it's really hard for people that are undergoing this type of an inflamed environment to try to eat more food. Like it's a really, it's like an all out effort just to get like a teaspoon or a tablespoon down. But the second woman, you know, figures it out and starts eating more and she gains like three pounds. And like, that's not a huge amount. Um, and next thing I know, she's now stronger. And next thing I know, she's like, I think I could handle now some treatments. And all of a sudden, She's doing really well right now. And I actually think she's going to beat this. The first woman, um, she wasn't able to get the weight back and she's on hospice now. And she's like, she's kind of like accepted that it's not going to, you know, she's not going to make it. So at that point, you can't force anyone to do something. You just got to support their decision making, you know. But I mentioned that because um, when you hear about um, muscle mass, the things you don't always hear about is uh, muscle control sleep. But sleep so impacts muscle. It's like a two-way street. You kind of always, like, depending on how scientists study things, they talk about one way, they forget about the opposite side. So skeletal muscle produces myokines. It does help regulate sleep. Now, I'm not saying that's the only variable that impacts sleep, but for people that start to lose muscle and become frail, they're now losing an input that helps control sleep, you know, through the myokines. Then... Um, the other thing that uh, muscle does is that uh, regardless of your joint damage, um, you could have the most jacked up joints and yours truly does definitely have jacked up joints. Uh, the more muscle you have around the joints, the less pain you have, the better the stabilization of a dysfunctional joint. So this is where like orthopedists sometimes don't see the whole picture when looking at an MRI. I've seen MRIs of knees and hips of men who have way more damage than I do, and they're running and squatting and lifting fine with no pain. So I'm like, okay, what's different? Like, how could they have more structural damage and move so much better than I can? And you realize it's how does your nervous system interpret that threat? And part of that is when you have pain, you start to lose the ability to generate tension in a certain way. And so one of the easiest thing to do is isometric holds like like you have to retrain the nervous system how to get tension around the area of the joint that you say you can't generate tension and over time the muscles start to counterbalance the inappropriate mechanics inside the joint and then you can start remodeling the tissue it's not quick uh, but you could get someone pain-free within days but the actual tissue remodeling of the cartilage that's going to take a lot longer. That's going to take three months to maybe years. Most people, once they're pain-free, they're thinking they're better, right? They're not looking at the microarchitecture of the cartilage and saying, oh, it's got to be modified still, you know, something like that. On the, um, some tools that I think uh, I want to mention earlier, and I apologize if it's kind of out of order, there's um, this micro-vibration stuff now that I, I think is really interesting I don't, um, so this is, I think, better than vibration training. One of the things I've noticed with vibration training is too many guys overdo it and they get too much G-forces in the brain and they actually get some damage in their joints or in their nervous system. With the microvibration, it's a more gentle thing that actually could stimulate cartilage regenesis um, and uh, 
one of the things that also does is really improve the ability of the brain to control the body. And that translates to better control when lifting. And the idea then is if you have better use of your nervous system, you could better target the muscle group you're trying to target. So kind of think of it as like, if I want to train my hamstrings, but I can't feel my hamstrings, well, how am I going to make them grow if I can't even figure out where they are within my own nervous system, you know? No, it makes sense. I mean, it, you know, uh, there's a great relationship between body awareness, but also the bigger one that we run into constantly is, um, you know, exercise selection. So, I mean, the idea of, um, you know, you, you think about like, oh, I'm uh, squatting for my hamstring development. And you're like, well, to really engage a hamstring, you can't have b- both joints move at the same time. So like, you know, you think about uh, like an RDL being, you know, more glute heavy more than hamstring, but then a straight leg deadlift, putting a ton of work into those hamstrings. And then also realizing you train the hamstrings in two ways, you either lengthen them and then you can curl them like a bicep. So we run into a lot of individuals that I think that the movement that maybe they're prefacing or the one that they like, or they think that is working uh, in reality, just anatomically isn't hitting what they think it does. So, I mean, that's part of our education piece and within the programming, like, hey, like this is what we're doing. Here's how we're moving through these different exercises and trying to fix different imbalances. So maybe it just comes down. I mean, there's so much, like I, like I was telling Tex, um, you know, within social media, there's just so much information being thrown at people. I think what it does is it just causes confusion. I mean, look, you know. Muscle the, confusion, John? Well, I mean, just uh, mental confusion. I mean, look at the nutrition. I mean, uh, like there isn't probably a day that goes by that something isn't, uh, doesn't pop up to me or isn't sent to me by somebody where I scratch my head and think like, what the fuck? This makes no sense. And it's because I think, uh, you know, if you throw a little bit of technology at it or, you know, a little bit of fancy this or that, or, you know, somebody looks like they're fit. I mean, whatever they put out, somebody's going to necessarily buy into it. Um, For me, what I look for is consistency. And if I have a real question, I usually call you. Yeah. So um, if you had a, what would you say is the number one uh, most common muscle that most guys have underdeveloped? Would you say like relative to the rest of their muscles on their body? Like, so would you say like calves, hamstrings? Or would you- uh, I think um, most people really suffer from a lack of hamstring development. And I think it's because the movements that they're, that they're using aren't necessarily hitting the hamstring in interesting ways. Uh, the other one, uh, and, imaginary lat syndrome, John. Uh, yeah, we did a whole ILS. Yeah, we did a, a whole masters of movement on ILS, imaginary lat syndrome. Um, <laughs> uh, like, you know, and, and I know it's, it's cliche, but that posterior chain, I mean, we see a lot of dudes with a lot of flat asses. I mean, no idea on how to necessarily develop the glutes and, uh, really, uh, a ton of weakness in those erectors. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen a dude with like erectors. that looks like, you know, loaves of French bread, you know, which was for us was a big hallmark, you know, to have big thick erectors. So, um, you know, this idea that, you know, somehow I'm going to develop abs. I mean, it's, I mean, it's probably the same stuff we've always seen where people are so what they can see in the mirror and don't really worry so much about what they can't. Yeah. The reason I was asking is, um, you know, when I was uh, younger, um, I could really pull some weight in the deadlift and my hamstrings were always pretty strong. And then one day, um, I was, uh, I was getting a lot of hip pain on the front of my hip and I was uh, talking to one of the docs here and I was like, you know, I feel like because of pain, I totally avoided all kinds of movements that probably I should have been doing, right? So I kind of stopped doing it because it hurt. As I, instead of figuring out how to do them without pain kind of thing. And so um, 
started then evaluating, um, you know, do and I would call them like a poor man's GHR. So we have like a full GHR system. They got another one. It's kind of like just a black bench close to the ground. You could easily get in and out. And um, I couldn't do a single like GHR because my hamstrings were so weak. And I was like, oh my God, like I used to do this with hundreds of pounds and now I can't even do it with body weight. And then I realized, wow, that's the consequence of pain. You avoid things that hurt as opposed to having someone evaluate, like, what are you doing wrong? And then one of the things we found is that um, I wasn't positioning my pelvis correctly before doing the movement. So I would do it. It would hurt my hips. So then I would not do it as opposed to figuring out what to tighten to stabilize the hips before executing the movement. And so I learned a lot, you know, about um, how to use uh, – you know, appropriate exercise programming to counter pain. And I haven't gotten a recent MRI, but I'm moving way better. So I probably will at some point. I just don't think it's going to show enough change right now to make sense to do it. Uh, but we've, um, I had dinner last night with a visiting uh, doctor. She's from California. And she's like, yeah, I wanted to ask, uh, do you know anything about exosomes or stem cells? <laughs> I think I know a lot. Yeah. Is really, and so then one of the other doctors there says um, he's put more stuff in his body than anyone on planet Earth. This is a true statement. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, I witnessed it. So, yeah. uh, what uh, uh, something that we do, and I'm sure other people do this too, but really the hallmark for any of the power athlete programs, uh, there's always going to be prep movements involved. And I'm real big on like hitting certain things, you know, with higher volumes, you know, three by, you know, 15, 20, 30 reps, trying to get people. And it might even be, uh, you know, like seated banded hamstring curls, you know, in high reps to try to drive a ton of blood into those hamstrings. And I actually, uh, John Meadows, um, who since passed away, I remember rapping with him about training stuff. And he's like, you know, uh, I feel like you got to drive a ton of volume and just really just hit like those hamstrings with a lot of blood so that they wake up so that they be, you know, they decide to take part in your training. And I took that uh, to heart with, um, you know, not only the hamstrings, but like some of the quad stuff and, you know, whether it be dead bugs in the movement, I mean, pushups, I mean, almost like uh, not pre-fatiguing, but like hitting certain smaller muscles with a ton of volume in that prep so that when you go in and train, I mean, I think that there was this misconception that, oh, you're, you know, you're going to be, you know, hurting your maximal lifts. And I'm like, yeah, but I think that's for untrained individuals or people that don't have a high level of conditioning. At this point, almost that getting that volume on that front side in some other ways and focus on uh, whether it be centrics or even some isometric contractions against the bands has been like a world game changer for me in my own training. So, I mean, that's seeped into all of our stuff. To, to build off that, John, we also have Iron Flex. Tom, we, we'll give Bryce some, uh, some access to this so you can experience it, but movement therapy program. So our foundational movement yeah. patterns, but in different, different ways, different modes. So you can find if there's a limiting factor in your own movement or a pain-free variation of a hinge, pain-free yeah. variation of lunges, so exposing to all these different, where you may call weird movements, but it's simple foundational stuff, step, squat, lunge, yeah. in different planes of motion, that you can find different variations that then maybe the variation in our, our weighted programs like Jack Street, Grindstone, Field Strong, that then, okay, I'm going to do this variation of the movement with a dumbbell versus a barbell, because I know from my movement discovery that it's pain-free and I'm not neglecting it all together. 
Well, and uh, for some of our older athletes, this has been actually different between that and the younger athletes. Um, for the, some of the older athletes, we end up using like the EMS devices, whether it be powered out or whatever you have available to you in a pre-training environment. You know, they have like, uh, I think it's like potentiation uh, settings, which I'm not a huge fan of, but using some of their deals to almost wake up motor units that might be sitting dormant for older athletes and then putting them into the training environment. I know for our younger guys, after we train, I usually have them hit the EMS to kind of, you know, clean up anything that didn't get activated in the training but actually for the older athletes, like waking that shit up beforehand was extremely valuable. Um, and I do love using the blood flow restriction. I know, you know, there's uh, like, I see little weird arguments on it, but at the end of the day, uh, if I can get a ton of volume and drive a lot of blood into a specific muscle or, you know, let's say a, a joint um, with an extremely light load and taking out some higher volume, I've never viewed that as a bad thing. I mean, in terms of like hypertrophy and health, I mean, anytime I can get a lot of blood into an area, especially a joint, I think an opportunity creates for greater healing. Yeah, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of gadgets on the market that are at a premium price point. So like 40 grand, 100 grand, and essentially a common aspect of it is that they manipulate variables like uh, compression, so restrict blood flow. So they have like a uh, compression and a relaxation so it allows blood to come in and out they also manipulate tension and they manipulate temperature so the idea is you kind of got multiple variables to control what's going in and in terms of uh, rehabbing from an injury um, occlusion is something that a lot of guys could really benefit from one is you could dramatically reduce the load and still simulate muscle protein synthesis and then there's some things like back when i was competing the emphasis in most of the research at that point was kind of like, you know, triples and singles. Like that's what you have to work up to handling. And it wasn't really the, the technology to look at, well, let's say if you did 32 reps to failure or if you did a 1RM. Like, you know, how are they how are they the same in terms of what they do? Oh, my God. This light's going to drive me crazy. They got – um. When I don't move enough in the room, so I set it up so I have to keep moving. I got <laughs> yeah, it reminds you to get up like uh, like shocks you. I get so caught up in analyzing data, I could literally sit in a chair like the entire day and not move. Right? I won't even go to the bathroom eat. And I'm like, this is so unhealthy. I need an external stimulus. So I got the light set up. So if I don't move a certain amount of time, it goes off. So that's like my visual cue. Hey, stupid, stop what you're doing and move, you know? And then it works a lot. But of course, when you're in the podcast. Yeah, it's it's not working the same way. And I, you're going to be typing up, Tom's got to pay his bills. <laughs> well, uh, like the research is pretty interesting. Um, and there was something, I think, from 2019 where they looked at different rep ranges. And the hypertrophy gain wasn't that different from like, you know, one to three, three to five. I mean, within the rep ranges, the idea came down to as long as you were pushing, you know, to failure or damn near close, you know, to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger and pumping iron when they asked him, you know, what reps the one that made you muscular? He said the next one. If I can get eight, it was nine. If I can get nine, it was ten. And, you know, there was some genius and simplicity in that. But there's this idea where, you know, it's only seven to 12 reps is how you put on muscle. You can't put on muscle with one to three. But they found that the reps were, you know, pretty, you know, uh, similar in effect as long as you were pushing the outer registers and going towards or, you know, approaching failure. But but then you were talking about uh, these, you know, Olympic lifters, you know, doing singles, doubles and triples and kind of leaving reps on the, you know, they could probably do it for five or six. And yet those guys 
we're, we're putting on a ton of muscle. Was it the fact that it was so dynamic in nature or the fact that, you know, like it's accumulating volume? Well, they did a lot of volume. You know, a lot of those guys, I mean, I can remember. Um, so uh, one, one of my coaches years ago was Leo Totten. And uh, he was a stud back in his day, Olympic lifting. And so I was going to Penn State. He was wearing my training programs. And he would send me to training program. And then one day I looked at it. And it said back squat. And it said 85 times five, you know, times five. And then in between, you had to do 100 times one. So you had to basically do 85% five reps, rest a minute or two. We're still here. No, sorry. I'm not sure what happened on my screen. Just went blank. So then do a single and then go back and forth, like 5RM, 1RM type of thing. And so um, it was brutally hard, right? And so I get done and, and I'm doing this for like eight weeks and I'm just getting like ridiculously strong now. <clears throat> so Caesar's like, man, you made like really good progress. I said, yeah, that training program was really hard. He goes, really? Because everybody else said it was easy. I said, we got the back squats is 85%. He goes, that 85% was your best clean, not of your best back squat. <laughs> so you're like, let's say if you clean 300 pounds, 85% of that, it's not 85% of 500 pounds. <laughs> so I didn't, oh, I didn't see that anywhere on this thing. <laughs> so I'm basically like killing myself like every week, every week. But the thing was, I trusted him and I believed in him, right? So I just yeah. did what he said, right? And then what I realized afterwards, like if you just buy in, it doesn't matter if it's the wrong thing. You can still make results. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, consistency. I mean, the, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, though, the one thing that, and I, I tend to take notes whenever we have these conversations, or at least you and I talk privately, and the one that I've never heard until today uh, is the 10 hours of total exercise per week usually results in no instances of disease. Ridiculously lower. Yeah. Now, I would probably... Um, uh, a few things. One, sensibility. Like, if I'm running and it's jacking up my knee each time, yeah, sure, sure. Got to figure out a different mode of activity to not aggravate the knee because then, you know, I'm going to make it harder to keep that ten hours. But if you're doing it right, if you're staying within your fitness abilities, you should be able to progress and to get to the point where, like, you know, you could add additional load, you could add additional, you know, intensity of some kind. Um, one of my favorite things to do with guys that love to come in and tell me how fit they are. I was like, oh, that's great. Let's get you over here. You know, just do simple things like 20-second all-out sprint on an elliptical with a pretty high load. Then 10 seconds, not nothing, no move, another 20. Usually left to one, they're like tapping out. Some guys get to three, but they cancel their appointments the rest of the day because they never felt that much oh. effort that quickly before, you know? Tom, we, we, um, I hit you up, uh, cause, uh, you know, Dr. Bob was working on some of our fighters and, uh, the, so we were training them getting ready for worlds. So we reached out and, uh, pulled some of the old Tabata, uh, assault bike protocols out and then, you know, using beta alanine and it was pretty wild. Like there was kind of a, I guess you could say like, uh, uh, initial dose that we were hitting them with which was like two and then we went to three and like like in the beginning they were imploding like you would have thought the two bouts of you know 20 seconds on 10 seconds off would kill them and then we got to three and then four and then i remember the first day we went to eight like their eyes got real big and then we got to the point where they were able to handle eight with like you know uh, 1500 1600 watts on the bike and then being able to hold some decent percentages after 
rest three or four minutes and then do another bout and get them into, we were, you know, going into 16 and the idea is to eventually get to 24 bouts. Uh, but it was, it was wild to see, you know, their progress at 16. And then, you know, looking back at some of the pictures and how they were after just two in the beginning. And uh, it's amazing to see. And then also when they went out to compete, like the fact that their conditioning was so high, realizing that most people weren't doing it. And the reason I love the bikes is because there's no eccentric load. You can just fucking burn them down and they can come back and do it, you know, you know, 24 or 48 hours later. Yeah. What I, what I kind of found for myself and a few guys that I was working out with, um, let's say we haven't done any Tabatas like on a cardio device not talking about like you know 20 seconds of dumbbells or something like that the first um the protocol we did was we would just do one sprint the first day and that was the workout as far as that goes the next day i would do two it's like 20 10 20 done next day three and after about three i could pretty much go like from there go five and ten like like I didn't try to kill myself the first day. I just gave like a little stimulus and make sure I could come back. But let's just say if I went the first day, did three to five, I probably would be laying on the bed the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. And and then you get that uh, uh, that flu. Like for what would happen to me is when I get done with my first date, I'll get this like uh, weird cough, uh, which I think comes from like the uh, the gas exchange. And I'll like get this uh, almost like breaks. I don't know. It's like phlegm and this deep like uh, cough. It's the only thing I can do. And it takes about two days to go away. And I know like once I get that cough, I've basically burned myself enough to where now I can continue. Because, I mean, we've done it with such regularity. But, uh, man, when you're able to really use those consistently, you know, let's say two, three days a week, uh, just the capacity that you have to be able to be poured over into your other training, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it just it almost seems like magic. And, uh, you know, but you have to be consistent in it and, you know, dumb enough or fucking smart enough how it is to consistently want to burn yourself to the ground. Um, my, uh, so I, I think I mentioned earlier, um, I got a lot of, uh, weighted pushups from my favorite movements recently. Mm-hmm. Another one is the, um, like a landmine shoulder press one arm. So, um, uh, this stuff I never did, you know, when I was competing, we were very like, you know, it was powerlifting with squat, bench, deadlift, and maybe minor variations, like an incline, you know, press or something. Um, but recently, um, I've uh, really developed uh, like a newfound appreciation because um, at the end, the load is kind of going away from you a little bit. It's not like right over you. And um, that's definitely reduced like um, compression as far as the joints, like in the elbow or shoulder so you guys um in your training design have you thought about any type of arc movement patterns at all in the um when you're designing the programs the arc stuff is is kind of an interesting piece um and i'm trying to think of like i mean like other than maybe like a potential med ball Um, you know, you think about like some rotational stuff this way, rotational stuff this way, uh, you know, like fixed point type movements. Um, but I mean, for the most part, I can't really think of what we would hit for in the arc. Why do you have any recommendations? Kettlebell snatch. Like I got some fast thinking ones, but it's, I'm more skill based than the landmine. It doesn't mean we can't do a landmine. Yeah. I, I do really like the landmine stuff, especially for like the rows and, and uh, some dynamic polling. But I got the idea. I don't know what you guys call those rows with, um, you know, landmine rows. You have a name for that? Meadows rows. Meadows rows. So that was thinking about some of that. Um, 
So when I could position it, let's just say if my elbow is inflamed and I'm, you know, I like, let's say I do it well on one side, but I don't want to keep doing it the same way on the other side. So I try to figure out a variation. And one of the things I realized is like, um, what's nice about that type of training is you could have the weight, like say further away or closer, in other words, you could change where it is, right? In terms of this way, and then do your row that joint angle. So it's not, not aggravating, let's say your elbow. And so I was like, oh, so then let me try this with my presses. And then what I found is I could find, let's say like I want to be here and then I want to kind of like get like a little bit of rotation and kind of drive through to lock mm -hmm. out the weight. Let's say it's aggravating my elbow. I could literally come out in a different position and then press there and then gradually, you know, kind of get, you know, I want to say gradually, like maybe week or two here, week or two here, week or two here, but kind of come back in. So now I could kind of be where I want to be, but without pain and stuff. And so that's what I thought. Um, there's not a lot of, um, like, there's not a lot of, uh, let's say, like, if you're using a barbell or dumbbell, you don't have that luxury of just going anywhere you want with it because it's yeah. side of your control at that point, you know? Yeah. And stuff, you have a little bit more, like, uh, range to play with things. Yeah, um, yeah that we, makes sense. We do teach that with the squat and changing to the more athletic stance away from the the power lifting and the sport of fitness squatting. So we do take that into consideration with the legs, but now, now we got some room to play with, with the arms. Yeah, the, the other one we've been messing a bunch with, um, there was, uh, uh, these different, uh, slanted boxes. You know, do you remember the old Polish boxes? You remember where the guys were doing like they they were called Polish boxes. They were actually slanted so that when you were doing plyometrics, you were kind of landing at different angles. And the idea was it was increasing, um, you know, stored elastic energy within the plyometrics and was creating greater stiffness in the, in the ligaments and the joints. And uh, one of the guys that we know as a strength coach was doing some demos of it. And so I hit him up being like, hey, uh, you know, what are the angle or like what's the measurements on those because I'll just go make them. And uh, we never got anything back from them. And so uh, something popped up, you know, of course your phone's listening to you. And we ended up buying some slanted boards uh, from another guy just to kind of see if we liked it and more importantly to kind of take some measurements so we could make these plyo boxes. And it's been pretty interesting because uh, like what the, you know, pulling off of those slanted boxes, for us what we've really focused on is, you know, foot strength and the idea of putting the big toe in the ground, sitting up into a position, driving the knee out into a strong position so you have an arch, but then also, you know, knee tracking over the instep. So we've been real big on, you know, coaching this position. And what's pretty wild about these slanted boards is when you put people on that we've never coached, it naturally allows them to get into the right position. Whereas for us, we actually feel weaker because we know how to get into the right position. So it's pretty fascinating to look and say, you know what, like here's just one change in the modality um, that, you know, takes into account that most people's feet are pretty weak. And by putting you in this position, you're kind of hacking through that a little bit. So I was going to, I'll send you a link for him because as I was doing these, I was thinking like, fuck man, I wonder if this is, would benefit Tom from changing these different foot angles to see how that affects your hip. And more importantly, it very well might be that on these things, you either feel worse or better. Um, I just wonder that uh, the, you know, cause I know the guy's got a bunch of different angles on it. So I'll, I'll shoot you a link for it, but I thought it would be something you would dig. Yeah, so, um, from a philosophy perspective, like in my mind, I'd like to imagine that 
no matter what foot position or joint angle, I could lift the weight, right? That's like, doesn't matter where I'm at, like one leg, one toe, it's going up, you know, kind of thing. But then when you actually explore your limitations and your range of motion, you're like, I'm strong here. I made a minor change. I'm like, oh my God, it's like as if I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Well, that's like the Dr. Bueller deal. Like, um, and I know this has happened to us where all of a sudden Bueller's testing you and then all of a sudden he moves it a little bit. And as he goes to test, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like knowing in my mind that like I can't generate force in that position or more importantly, fight him. And uh, it's almost like he knows. He like puts you in one and then he just changes the, you know, the joint angle or the arm or this. And instantly before he even goes, I'm like, doc, I can't fight this. And uh, he's, uh, you know, Bueller's so funny with that. And then he's like, you know, people, athletes especially, get stuck in these different movement patterns where you're extremely strong and you end up, you know, just compensating into that position. And unfortunately, that's where this dysfunction happens. So it was, uh, we've been playing a bunch with these things, like doing kettlebell swings and everything we can, single leg movements. So just playing with them. But it was really interesting. Uh, the fighter guys that didn't have as much training as we did felt way better like I feel stronger on this what about you I'm like I feel way weaker and it was just that the fact that I think we've spent so long fighting to get into the strongest position anatomically that we know whereas these boards just kind of stuck people into this position well how did and how did you distinguish that from maybe you're just naturally stronger in that position and not as strong on the board yeah we I don't know I mean we haven't probably done enough on it but i mean we've tried to squat single leg i mean we've used it with the belt squat we've done it with uh you know trap bars and you know kettlebell swings inversion eversion yeah, yeah so turned them around a little bit yeah so so one was was forcing more dorsiflexion one which allowed a more uh, you know plantar flexion so it's been really interesting just people coming in and being like hey go stand on those things and squat see how you feel and, uh, <laughs> you know, typical, like, hey, we got this new toy, everybody try. But uh, what's pretty wild uh, training these Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters, you know, who are some of the top guys in the world, but then realizing in terms of like performance training and barbells, uh, complete novices and amateurs. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just the fact that, you know, they've survived upon the skill that they've developed over the years. And then when we put them into a, you know, standard training model and ask them to do some stuff, they were just not very proficient, which is what you'd expect, but then also seeing how fast they progress and remember being like, God damn it, these beginner gains. If only I, only I could have these for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, but it makes me think of, uh, so years ago when I was at Penn State, um, we had CJ Hunter went on to become, you know, world yeah. record in the shot put. There was a bunch of other guys. I mean, Penn State had seriously good depth in the shot puts. There's a ton of guys that could have done very well. Well, <clears throat> One uh, CJ, I want to say he was like squatting 765 one time. And um, he goes to a track meet and some other guy that wasn't anywhere near as strong, he throws further than CJ. And um, what's his name? Um, Z, Dr. Zatsiorski, was a biomechanics professor at the time, and he was teaching his advanced strength methods course. And one of the things he was you know, trying to drive is like for certain movements, once you get to a certain ability to generate, so let's say a 500-pound back squat, there's no longer like to now go to 600 pounds. It doesn't improve performance anymore. Now you need other attributes to continue to improve. And I remember watching CJ when he squatted, he, like it was a slow squat. Right. And I'm like, well, the shot put such an explosive movement. And then is that really going to transfer? And I you know, didn't know if it did or didn't that then this was in the eighties, you know, or maybe early nineties, maybe. 
And so then um, when Dr. Z comes out, like he's showing joint angles and mathematical equations all over the board, like looks like a physics lab all of a sudden. <laughs> You're just, you know, talking to someone about lifting weights. And you realize how much these guys looked into all this stuff when he was at Russia. And, um, you know, with these uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, you know, my observation is most of those guys that do well aren't really that strong. So it'd be interesting to see, like, so is it they squat 225 and that's strong enough and now there's some other parameters that need more, you know, maybe they need to have more fatigue resistance or something else, you know, or, or I'm just picking the weight arbitrarily. Well, what's wild is that it's taken a really interesting deviation in that um, there's what's called gi and no gi. You know, the gi, obviously, when they're in there, like a uniform, right? So there's kind of handles you can grab onto the cloth and that deal. And then there's this whole other new variation, which is called no gi, where they're wearing, you know, shorts and a rash guard, let's say, which has become very similar to wrestling, where now there is no handles that these guys have taken on this, um, you know, basically what looks like catcher, you know, what we, what we would know as wrestling. And the guys that are doing really well at no gi have a huge wrestling background. And uh, on, as you know, uh, you know, the wrestlers that are ungodly strong tend to be very, very successful. I mean, think about the guys that are beasts. I mean, I, like every guy that I know, we went to dinner with uh, Matt Pollock um, the other night, who's one of our buddies. He wrestled at, uh, you know, at uh, Syracuse and also at Hofstra. I mean, just fucking absolutely strong individuals. I, I never met a wrestler that when you shake his hand, you didn't know he was a wrestler. So, I mean, those dudes are always real stout. So now that it's kind of gone into this deal where, you know, now they're, you know, obviously the technique and the movement, but like the idea that maybe before there was a technique and they could almost gravitate towards it. Now with this, you know, move towards no gi, you can see that the strength deficiency between these guys, um, you know, what they did on this side isn't going to help them, that they have to be really fucking strong and really stout, really good with their isometric contractions and the movement. And um, that's where this thing, I think, has taken an interesting turn. Uh, so they need to be dramatically stronger than, than what they were. Just And um, it's become really just apparent. And I was actually talking to uh, uh, Sean Giaberio about this. And he's like, you know, it's a new game. Um, you know, like if they if these guys are in the gi, they're going to fucking murder them. They go into no gi. Now they have to be strong. Like you would see, like, you know, the pictures of these Russian, you know, Eastern Bloc wrestlers that were just absolute fucking savages. Like that's what's going to be successful with these guys. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm not as knowledgeable about jujitsu as some maybe some other things. But in my mind, what always stood out for me is just uh, the patience and the discipline these guys have, you know. Yeah. But it seems like by getting rid of the gi, it's going to allow the athletes that are more explosive to maybe dominate a little bit more because, of, you know, things like that. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's the kind of stuff like, uh, you know, for me, um, anytime I see a sport where you get to see people at like the ultimate level display their skills, it's always interesting to watch like how these guys figure out how to do something and you, you think okay where else could you do this i mean maybe not like there's probably not, probably not going to go home and like jujitsu wrestle your wife or something you know but there's probably not a lot of other applications for it but there's probably ways you could get information out of that to apply like the patience aspect of things you know to improve your skill acquisition well well back in the day uh there was no time limit on matches so, you know, you go into an evenly matched deal, you know, I mean, we, you know, we think about it like plays like, hey, I got, 
you know, 60 minute game, five to seven seconds, uh, boxing, you look at rounds, um, you know, wrestling, same deal too. These guys would go into something and it was, uh, it was a submission deal. So the guy that could last the longest, and if a guy had to go for three hours, he'd go for three hours. So I think there was this idea of like patience and movement. And now that they've added like, um, you know, the, the worlds and then also the ADCC where now they've put time components into it. The match is 10 minutes. If you don't engage, you're going to get points taken. So they're, you know, trying to put these rules in. So these guys just can't just kind of hang out for, you know, X amount of time. So I think it's added changes to it. But the one thing that the Nogi is really pretty apparent is, uh, you gotta be extremely strong and, you know, very technical and just being able to like push the pace. I know with us doing the conditioning stuff, these guys conditioning was really, really high. So to be able to go out for 10 minutes and continually fucking try to drive a guy in the earth, um, ended up being a, a pretty good play for that. So, you know, making sure they're super strong, um, obviously they've got to be very technical, but then also having the conditioning to be able to push, you know, push your agenda for 10 straight minutes. Uh, feels like as I started watching it, like, you know, you start doing kind of a checklist, like, you know, what skills do you want? You know, you want to make sure they're fucking extremely strong that, you know, if you're holding a dude, you're strong within these isometric contractions where he can't get away from you. Do you have the conditioning and the flexibility and the movement and the skill and then enough of a fuck you attitude to try to put your head through somebody and just fucking smash them? So it's, uh, it, it's pretty, it's, it's very cool. Whereas I think, uh, at least from observation in the gi, there was a lot more patience and there was just a lot more handles. Like they could just kind of hold on and do stuff and kind of maneuver around. Whereas now it's like, there's nowhere to fucking hide. Just go out there and smash people. And the best guy in the world right now is a guy named Gordon Ryan. And uh, he's extremely, you know, very technically proficient, very, very strong. And the guy moves very well. Like they just had a video of him well, uh, wrestling Half Thor. Uh, out, out in Vegas, which was pretty cool. And half there was, what, like 400 pounds? And this guy's probably 220, so it was pretty neat. Speaking of movement, Dr. Tom, I got a few more questions for you to close this out. Sure. Welcome. Move the Dirt Motivation segment with Dr. Tom. Tom, we're going to do rapid fire on these questions, so dig fast, not deep. Ready, ready. What does the phrase, move the dirt, mean to you? <laughs> okay. Move the dirt. I, I golly jeepers, that's something I haven't thought about. Um, I guess uh, push into the ground and you know separate your hands from your feet, like in a plank position. All right, that's it's one of uh, John Wellbornisms, <laughs> an opportunity. And Dr. Tom, if there's anybody that I know that represents Move the Dirt, it's definitely you. You've been to the peak of the 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 strongman game. And you continue to explore movement, and now you're training on grindstone with Bryce, and finding different variations uh, that your body is is adapt to. So finding limitations and exploring movement. So that's in a sense what it represents is is your discovery of movement, what you can and what you cannot do to continue to train throughout the day. So it's moving dirt every single day. Some days you find your groove and you got that shovel and you're hauling ass. And then other days you get a little teaspoon just to discover a limitation that becomes a new goal and target for, for you and your abilities. Hmm. Well, thank you for educating me on a new definition for that phrase. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to explore your goals for 2023. What are you, what are you digging for this upcoming year? Um, all right. So um, I want to be able to pedal a bicycle. I can't pedal a bicycle right now. Um, I just got to the point 
I can uh, walk up eight inch steps without like really struggling a lot. Mostly um, uh, just the bone spurs in my left hip were major um, you know, thing holding me back. But now I'm starting to get a normal gait pattern. So I don't, when I walk, I'm not like going back and forth like a windshield wiper as much. So uh, if I, once I ride a bike or you know, a pedal bicycle, you know, it's like when when he does stuff, when these guys do stuff on like the echo bikes here and stuff. Um, I usually got to do different movements because I don't have enough flexion in the hip and the knee simultaneously. Uh, the next thing is I'd like to be able to ride a horse. I haven't been able to ride a horse in um, ever. <laughs> no, well, back in the day when I would come walking toward the horse, I would say, hell no. <laughs> nice. That's and, a good one. Yeah. But uh, I had a quick funny story. We go to Italy and I had planned um, a trip to take the family to do horseback riding in the mountains and go truffle hunting. So like I'm thinking all altruistically, like we'd have this fun. We're going to do all the stuff. We had a bunch of people all set up. <clears throat> what I didn't think about is, my hips were so damaged, I couldn't open up my legs wide enough to actually sit on a horse. So they bring out this big horse for me because I was a little bit bigger than some of the other people there. And so I got like this step ladder to get up on the horse. I'm like, nah, I don't need that. So I literally just jump up, get on the horse without the step ladder. So I'm feeling pretty proud of myself, but like not even like 10 seconds in you know, I'm feeling like my legs are being ripped apart from my body. And I'm like, oh my God, there's no way I could ride this horse all the way up. And the other thing was that my legs were like, picture both legs. Are <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're like Jean-Claude Van Damme where he's doing the splits over the uh, the semis? Yeah, except that I wasn't doing a split intentionally. I was like, yeah. it was like a wedge type of split. Like they were making a wish with me. So I'm like, look, I don't think I can, I can do this. I'll just sit back and you guys go and have fun. So I said, hey, would you mind bringing back that stepladder? Because I am definitely going to need a stepladder. And I'm probably going to need somebody to help me get out of this wedge position. Like, I couldn't move. I was immobilized. And so then, for some reason, I can't find a ladder. And this guy comes over. He goes, I'll help you. Just as he grabs his hands like this, he's like, put one foot. It's like, look, I'd rather just fall on the ground. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't mind getting hurt, but I don't want to hurt someone else. I would feel pretty bad if I did that. He's like, no, I can handle it. I can handle it. I said, all right. So he gets his hands together. He clasps his fingers, start to come down. And I stapled this poor guy to the ground. Like I literally drove him into the soil. And everyone's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I, you know, so I was trying to warn you that you know I didn't want to. You know, or do this to him. He's like, no, no, I'm okay. And he walks away holding his back. And I thought, <laughs> well, you don't ever want to hurt anyone. That's not, you know, fun. So you inject him with a billion exosomes. He was fine. No, I wish. Dude, I was in Italy. Like, how am I going <laughs> to have with? I just figured you traveled with all that stuff. Yeah. Got the exosomes in my pocket. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so anyway, it was, um, yeah, one of those stories where, uh, what I realized then is, wow, I hadn't ridden a horse in a long time. So I'd expect that I could do it. Cause the last time I was able to do it and given that gap, I, I didn't realize how dysfunctional my hips had become from mostly lack of use. Cause I, I stopped doing stuff cause it hurt me. Like I would only do leg extensions, leg curls, certain other movements because that didn't hurt. And that resulted in some of the dysfunction that had happened over time. So <clears throat> So bike, horseback riding, outside of that, um, those would be my two biggest things as far as like personal health stuff. Um, in terms of, is this going beyond health and just like personal health stuff is other things sure. like business, et cetera. Well, I just got um, FDA approval for a new technology where we're able to do local regional hyperthermia. And basically we use um, 
uh, uh, RF, so radio frequency to generate heat in an area the size of a football. And the idea is um, rather than trying to cook cancer, we're simply using electrical signals to stimulate the immune system to find cancer. And the thing about this that's so exciting, the combination of exercise with oxygen and hyperthermia was shown in the 40s and 50s have really, really impressive outcomes with cancer and other diseases. So just movement and heat, like not a big concept when you think of it that way. And yet a dead end and a dead end because like if you read so many studies, they're literally saying like one treatment, two treatments, people are better. And so it sounds extremely far-fetched. It sounds like no way this could happen when you read it. Well, now I got all this stuff here. And now I'm treating people one time, two times, and they're swearing they're better. Like I can't see every single molecule inside of them. But I'm watching, you know, people that were struggling and now they're not struggling. And so um, I think next year we're going to make some major impact in totally transforming how we view disease and how we treat different diseases using very basic things like exercise and heat. And that's going to take uh, a lot of my time. And um, outside of that, I don't know, you know, rest of the time would be, you know, trying to do the best job I can helping others, you know, get better and healthier. Well, cool, man. Well, we'll see you soon. Yep. You got it, guys. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you guys again. Oh, it's always great to hear from you. All right, Doug. We'll see you. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. See you. Bye. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq.